Kingdom of Nye. This is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. First-time callers may reach Art at area code 702-727-1222. 702-727-1222. Now, here again is Art. Once again, here I am. Good morning, everybody. Coast to Coast and way beyond. This is exactly that, Coast to Coast AM, and I'm Art Bell. And here's what's going to happen this week. Beginning in a few minutes... A man who's been in aerospace most of his life, Mark McCandlish, will talk about new aircraft, propulsion systems, and a whole lot more. If you've never heard Mark, you've got a real treat coming up. That's tonight. Tomorrow night, we're going to talk to... <laughs> we're going to talk to a very unusual man who's got a hole up in Washington, uh, very near where Mel's hole was, and this hole, too, seems to have no effective bottom to it. At one point, I think they said they lowered 4,000 uh, feet of monofilament and reached no bottom, except this time, guess what, folks? We have got pictures. Rob McCallum, the fellow who will be on here tomorrow night, was kind enough to provide photographs of the opening to this very obscure hole in Washington. By the way, if you want to see that photograph, it's up on the website now. All you do is go up, up to the website, uh, scroll down to Rob McCallum's name, and click on it, and you will be taken uh, to, a, um, uh, to a place uh, where you will see a photograph of this um, incredible hole. And it's been a long time since we've done a show like this, or since we've heard about a hole like this, and to have photography is an added boost. So that'll be tomorrow night. And then the next night, Dr. Ronald Klatz will be here to talk about, guess what, immortality. It is Dr. Klatz's position that if we can just live another 30 years, if you out there can hang on for another uh, 30 years, immortality will be available to you. He'll also talk about cloning. Then Thursday night, Edgar Casey will be here. No, not the Edgar Casey. He has passed on, of course. But this is Edgar Casey, Edgar E. Casey, who is um, Edgar Casey's son. And he has written a book about Atlantis that you're going to want to hear. Then Friday night, Saturday, Dr. David Jacobs, who has just written a, he's a professor of history, by the way, at Temple. He's just written a book called The Threat. And he is convinced that indeed they, in quotes, are here, and that basically it is all over. So that's the week in brief ahead. Coming up, Mark McCandlish. But first, I've got a little thing I want to read you that has been posted uh, at a very prominent place on the Internet entitled Art Bell on Government Black Ops Payroll? Question <laughs> mark. If I told you I could sell you one light bulb, and in the life of that light bulb, I would save you $60 in energy costs, would you go for it? Hmm? I can do it. This bulb will last 10,000 hours or six years of normal use. It screws into a normal socket just the way a regular bulb does. This bulb emits an equivalent of 75 watts of light, but it uses more like about 20 watts to operate. So you think about this a little bit, will you please? 
Each light will save over 500 pounds of coal needed to make electricity. But I think the more important point is yours, and that is one bulb, each one you buy, saves $60 in energy costs. And besides, it's better light. Buy one or more Philips electronic bulbs, and uh, they're $29.95 each. I mean, buy one. You know, start with one. Prove it to yourself. I've got them, I know. Buy six or more, and the price drops to $25.95. Buy a dozen or more, and the price drops to $21.95. Call Bob Crane in the morning at 1-800-522-8863. Come on, do the math. Think about it. One bulb, $60 during the life of that bulb is what you will save. one 800 522 8863. If you're an investor who wants to make big money in the global economy, listen closely. The foreign exchange marketplace is 60 times the volume of the New York Stock Exchange. And unique financial concepts can show you how to take advantage of changes in the value of the U.S. dollar versus all foreign currencies, like the German mark, Swiss franc, British pound, and Japanese yen. For example, the U.S. dollar versus the Japanese yen. In a recent one-month period, the yen moved 10 points. Positioned properly, you could have made more than $35,000 with an investment of only 5000 Get the complete reports and strategies. Learn how you can invest in the same currency markets that major banks and financial institutions use to make their profits. Call 1-800-934-1188. The information package and call are free. 1-800-934-1188. That's 1-800-934-1188. Of course, risk is involved and you could lose part or all of your initial investment. Only risk capital should be used. Past performance, not necessarily indicative of future results. All right. Um, I've got a note here that I've got to verify. Art, have you heard about that comet slash meteor? that exploded at altitude over or near El Paso, Texas, within the last 48 hours. News reports say that it was big, equivalent to several million tons of TNT. The news report on Como uh, said had it made the Earth's surface, it would have been the biggest story, news story, of 1998. No, I did not see that. Uh, the following was posted at uh, UFO Mind Paranormal Research Index News Group, whatever that is. It's one of the bigger ones, certainly. And it's entitled Art Bell on Government Black Ops Payroll. Is Art Bell on Secret Government Black Ops Payroll? Some question has arisen as to whether or not late-night radio talk show host Art Bell is on secret government payroll to air his show, which focuses more and more on UFOs, aliens, and wacko conspiracies. Scenario. A number of years ago, a talented talk radio host, who'd for much of his career lived in obscurity, always a local or regional celebrity, but not known worldwide, with a mediocre show, with mostly like other talk shows, a political slant, then he begins a weekend show devoted to the paranormal, in particular UFOs and aliens. That show becomes quite popular, and said radio talk show host begins to move the topic to his weeknight show, garnering much interest, not only from the public, 
but certain people within the government. Let's not stop him. It is decided. Let's make him bigger for our purposes. Said radio talk show host is approached by someone with a large broadcasting company. Say the Chancellor Broadcasting Company is an example. That is backed by illicit CIA funds. Said radio talk show host is told that his show can be syndicated all over the country rather than stuck in one region and that, quote, the paranormal stuff should always be the central focus, said radio talk show host, sees this as a golden opportunity. Keep in mind that disinformation is always a mix of the truth and lies to keep those seeking the truth running around in circles and never quite certain what is true or what is not. Hartnell's guests range from the quite credible... To the quite lunatic, and Mr. Bell never argues with nor agrees with his guests. He lets them talk. He lets his listeners make their own decisions. Many of his listeners, no doubt, believe what they hear. This format serves those special government people in other ways. They can keep track of what people, the calling listeners, think and have experienced. And they can keep tabs on controversial people like Sean Morton and Richard Hoagland. Why is it that certain guests on Art Bell disappear? Or they come into harm's way, but Art Bell never does. Case in point. A man named Rodney had trapped a ghost and talked at length about it. The next day, he reported to Art Bell that some quote, men in black, end quote, entered his home, beat him and his wife up, took their ghost-catching devices away from them. Then the man disappears, and Art is never able to find him. Second case in point, David Oates of reverse speech fame gets his house burned down with evidence of intruders after appearing on Art's show. Why doesn't Art Bell suffer any flap from the secret government that wants to suppress certain information. Callers on our show have often asked him, are you afraid they're going to come to your door? Artists always replied, I'm not afraid. If they're going to come after me, they're going to come after me. But until then, I'm doing my own show. Art has also stated that he knows his phone lines are tapped. He said it on the air. I'm well aware that certain people in our government service listen to this program. Of course they do. They want information. What better way to track down abductees and those who have seen UFOs and other things than a worldwide talk show with over 10 million listeners where the host invites people to discuss those kinds of experiences? What better forum to infuse disinformation among the masses who are interested in this subject matter? This isn't to say Art Bell is a knowing disinformation specialist or is knowingly on government payroll. He could have been duped with the idea of a large talk show. Or he could very well be part of this whole program. Two of his frequent guests are Linda Moulton Howe and Whitley Strieber, both of whom have been known operatives of the CIA on UFO disinformation. Radio disinformation has been used in wartime against the enemy. So has newspaper and TV disinformation, even to this minute. So, 
Don't think the black ops government would pass a chance like Art Bell, do you? There's a reason why they let Art Bell live and do his show and sometimes release real, sensitive information. Oh, there you've got it. Somebody went to an awful lot of trouble to uh, uh, get all that down. So much for that. Do I deny it? Nah. I stopped trying to deny this kind of stuff a long time ago. You guys just keep the check here on time, and I'll be denying it right along. For the past 18 years, Mark McCandlish has worked as a technical illustration consultant to the defense and aerospace industry. Huh, obvious CIA. A veteran of the United States Air Force, he was assigned to the 318th Fighter Interceptor Squadron and stationed at McCord Air Force Base, Washington, in the early 1970s, working as a weapons control systems mechanic on the F-106 Delta Dart. Later attending Art College, uh, the Art uh, Center College of Design in Pasadena, California, on the GI Bill, he studied automotive design and illustration. After a brief time working as an artist for a Hollywood special effects company, he was employed by General Dynamics Corporation, aha, as a technical and conceptual artist and as a technical publications editor. During his career, Mr. McCandlish has twice held a DOD security clearance for secret material. Aha. After leaving General Dynamics in 1982, Mr. McCandlish became an art consultant to various defense contractors. <clears throat> Over the past 16 years, he has been privately informed by several aerospace industry employees that the U.S. military has been operating extremely advanced aircraft and spacecraft that have been kept secret from the American public. These vehicles range in design from advanced stealth airships using jet propulsion to exotic spacecraft using anti-gravity or electrogravitic propulsion systems. Mr. McCandlish believes that he has assembled enough technical data regarding the construction of a working anti-gravity propulsion system that he actually plans to build one in the near future. Here is Mark McCandlish. Mark, welcome. Hi, Art. Hi. Well, um, having read your background, Mark, you sound more CIA than I do. Well, I've been accused of as much. <laughs> well, I, I understand that's when you really graduate. When you get this kind of stuff posted about you, you really have graduated, Mark. Well, in fact, uh, I've even been accused of being a member of the so-called aviary of... Uh, secret scientists trying to bring all this information out to the uh, public. How do we know you're not? Um, well, because it came as a surprise even to me when, <laughs> when I was told this. But, uh, yeah, but you see, that is exactly what you would be instructed to say. Would you like to know what my code name was? <laughs> Look, the only way we can know for sure is if we shake hands, you know, the secret one. Oh, the secret handshake. That's yeah. right. Mm -hmm. That's right. Anyway... Listen, enough of that. Okay. Uh, you, had, um, you had an opportunity to see a lot of uh, advanced design aircraft. And I've always wanted to ask, and I will ask, I know where we are today. I mean, I see the F-117 headed for the Gulf. Um, 
and and that's a stealth aircraft. Can't see it on radar. I mean, that's what we publicly got today. The F-117. The question is, uh, what are they doing here close to me at Area 51 in Dreamland or wherever else they happen to be these days? How far ahead are we from the F-117? Well, the general estimate that I've heard from a number of my sources indicates that uh, some of the programs that are now in development or in progress or actually in deployment can be as much as 30 years ahead of what is acknowledged as um, current technology. 30 years? Yeah. 30 years. I can barely imagine, in my wildest imagination, what 30 years would do to aircraft design. Maybe you can't imagine. Maybe you know. Well, you know, you have to understand that there are a lot of uh, compartmentalizations that occur within the Defense Department, um, different companies, different programs, different experiments. And when you get um, various committees that come together and say, gee, you know, we've got this great project over here that's yielded uh, 50% more lift out of the same kind of wing as we were using on an F-106 in 1973, uh, and it reduces the drag on the aircraft by 20%. Wow enhancing fuel and range or fuel consumption or I should say the, the reduction in fuel consumption and the range of the aircraft uh, and it's something as simple as uh, having thousands and thousands of little tiny holes drilled in the surface of the wing by a laser really and uh, basically pumping air out into the uh, the boundary layer around the wing uh, or sucking air into the wing from that same area to achieve different kinds of effects um, you can do things like that. Oh, I've never heard of that uh, before. That's a new one on me. Well, you know, Stan Deo out in Australia uh, is quite familiar with a lot of this kind of technology. In fact, I, as I recall from one of your previous programs, I think he even discussed the possibility of using electrostatic fields to achieve a kind of uh, enhanced yep. airflow over wings and actually moving aircraft in that manner. And, in fact, uh, that very same technology has been described in the pages of Aviation Week and space technology as uh, one of the things that they're actually using on the B-2 stealth bomber right now. Now, the word on the street about the B-2 is that there's nothing stealthy about it, that the B-2 can be seen on radar or that when it's passing through rain it can be seen. I'm hearing a lot of negative things about, mm -hmm. about the B-2. What do you know? Well, I've actually been inside the B-2 uh, assembly facility at um, the um, Plant 42 Air Force facility wow. uh, in Palmdale in the Lancaster area of Southern California. I've actually seen the aircraft undergoing um, construction, and I've been in on a number of presentations that discuss just this exact same kind of uh, problem or allegation. There are certain types of high-tech radar um, particularly radar that uh, broadcast over a wide range of frequencies. Uh, Ultra-wide ultra um, uh, radar frequency transmission does have the ability to pull um, certain features um, uh, out of uh, the B-2 bomber in terms of its reflectivity mm. uh, of the signal. And, and so there has been some debate about that. Um, there do seem to be some uh, ways in which this can be um, ameliorated or fixed uh, in terms of the way that the wings are shaped or the way that the edge of the, the control surfaces are shaped, the kinds of paint and material that are applied to the outer surface of the aircraft. There are a lot of things that they can do. I mean, even some of the, uh, 
the ideas that have been proposed uh, sound like uh, some of the stealth technology that you might have read about uh, back in the 60s in Tom Swift novels where they literally have receivers on one side of the aircraft that pick up the signal and transmit it out the other side of the aircraft so it appears as though it's not even there. I mean, wow. some of the things are as far-fetched as that. Well, you know that I saw something here in Nevada. I had a triangular object pass directly over my head at about 150 feet. Mm -hmm. It didn't fly, Mark. Uh, it was big. It was solid. It floated. That's the only word for it. Maybe doing all of 30 miles an hour mm -hmm. uh, directly above me and continued out across the valley. And I could have thrown a rock at this damn thing. Uh, so that implies to me that we have propulsion systems that uh, defy gravity. Uh, I don't know what else it implies. I, in, unless this thing was from someplace else, then we ha we've got anti-gravity. Do we have anti-gravity? Well, uh, the answer to that question is yes, but I don't think that what you saw was an anti-gravity propulsion system. Um, judging by the size of the vehicle as you have described it to me, or as I've heard it described previously on your show, uh, I honestly believe that what you saw um, may have been considerably higher than 150 feet in the uh, in the air, uh, but because of its texturing, shall we say, and because of the materials that are used, it appears to be a lot farther away than it is, or a lot closer than it actually is. Mm -hmm. um, however, I believe that what you actually saw was a proof-of-concept vehicle um, based on um, some proposals that go all the way back to the mid-1970s. Um, all right, hold, hold that thought, and we'll pick up on it after the bottom of the hour, which is what it is right now. I'm Art Bell. This is Coast to Coast AM. Coast AM with Art Bell. Now, here's Art. Once again, here I am. After reading that, I went into the other room and my wife wanted to know where were our suicide pills. Everybody knows anybody involved in the deep kind of black ops operations that obviously I must be. Got to have suicide pills, right? That's part of the kit. Then there should be three little black pills for our kitties. <laughs> medicine cabinet, huh? When you think about the future, uh, do you see our economy getting better or worse? Well, uh, the market, of course, was closed uh, for President's Day, but it will open again uh, later on tomorrow. And who knows? Up or down? Maybe up. And up and up and up. And maybe one day down. Well, the irregularities of the market are of no concern to you if you know how to trade in commodities, which the media I know has kind of made a dirty word. Talking about gold, copper, orange juice, heating oil, beans, cattle, that kind of thing. For three and a half years now, three and one half years, a long-term sponsor, Ken Roberts has been successfully teaching people in my audience to understand the principles of making money through clear, decisive decisions in the commodities markets. He's got a very unusual way of teaching you, which is simply that you invest on paper as you learn, 
And only when you are personally certain that you're losing money by not using money, do you, in effect, graduate yourself and begin? I've got a lot of people that are working about 30 minutes a day, and that's it. They're gone fishing. Want to know more? The information is without obligation. It's absolutely free. Even the call is free. If you want to know more, call 1-800-GOLD-KRC. That's 1-800-G-O-L-D-K-R-C. Or the number is 1-800-465-3572. Well, all right, back down to Mark McCandlish. And again, the craft I saw, Mark, um, to me, uh, you know, it was quite clear because there was nearly a full moon. Mm -hmm. uh, it is, of course, difficult to judge distance and size, but this sucker was close. And, and when I say close, I mean almost throw a rock at it close. It really uh, blocked out all the stars and the moon as it came over, that kind of deal. Well, let me ask you this, Art. I mean, and this is something that I could probably discern from my uh, work as an artist. If you were standing and looking at, up at this thing and you spread your arms apart to indicate the angle, wingtip to wingtip or nose to tail on this thing, how far of an angle do you think your arms would make from a... From you mean a when it was directly overhead? Yes. Oh, boy. Uh, I would think that if I went at about, let's see, ab uh, I'm, I'm doing it on camera. I can't. Um, I'll tell you what, Mark. Let's, <laughs> let's do this. Um, Somebody will think you're going praise the Lord, right? Yeah, that's right. Let, let, look, <laughs> let's do this. Um, you, you're an artist, and I have been looking for somebody just like you. Uh, between myself and my wife, I guarantee if we were to get together, we could... We could talk you into rendering a precise drawing of what we to. saw. I would love to. All right. With reference points, land, um, the horizon, um, the stars, the moon, all the rest of it, we could uh, We sure. and So let's do that. Yep. And you know what? When we're done, we'd probably be able to determine within, say, 25 to 30 feet of its actual length and width. You see, my problem is I can't draw. I draw stick people, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so I need somebody like you, and if, if we can get together and do it, we're going to end up with some good conclusions here and a drawing. Well, I'd love to, Art. All right, good. To. All right, so... I'll be your composite sketch artist. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, I've never seen it since. Uh, so the question is, what do you know is or is not currently going on out at Area 51? Well, you know, uh, they they do believe that, or at least many of the, the watchers who hang around that area who've been out there frequently maintain that most of the really serious, highly classified activity begin to taper off around 1992, although there are still people who swear that they have seen lights and things zipping around the sky out there from time oh, to yes. time. Oh, yes, yes. Um, I have talked to a number of people that believe that um, the the more highly classified uh, material and testing has been moved to either uh, northwestern uh, Nevada uh, or southwestern uh, Idaho in that general area up there. Mm. Um, in fact, uh, I know of a personal friend who as recently as 1992 actually had a, a sighting uh, of a 600-foot-long um, V-shaped boomerang-like uh, vehicle that apparently was having some kind of flight control problems and was hovering at a very strange angle near Cedarville, California, which is um, uh, up in that same general area. In fact, if you drew, uh, drew a line from Redding, California, where I'm located, up through that part of the country, it would pass right through that 
same general area of uh, northwestern uh, Nevada and southwestern uh, Well, Idaho. I'll tell you, test aircraft do crash. Now, there have been a number of crashes near me, mm -hmm. side of the mountain uh, near me, and when it occurs, Mark, you don't get anywhere near it. Even if there's a road, a public road that goes near it, Everything is completely uh, cordoned and blocked off. They bring in these big vans. Uh, a lot of interesting things occur, sure. but, but one of them is that you don't get to see a thing. That's true. In fact, uh, the pilots who fly these things are instructed that if they do get into trouble and it doesn't look like they're going to make it back to base, that they are instructed to auger this thing right into the ground at the highest velocity they can so that it's completely destroyed. Really? Yeah. In fact, when they go out there with a team to recover what's left of an aircraft, uh, they will basically determine what the point of impact is, and they will sift the soil down to 20 feet if they have to to get every last particle of it, uh, every last component that they can, principally because so many of the materials that are used in these vehicles uh, that al allow them this stealth capability uh, are are highly classified in, in the kind of materials, the, the kind of components that go in there, um, they just don't want the uh, the information to get out at all. How interesting. There's another type of aircraft that I want to ask you about sure. that I, I have seen evidence of out here, and I still don't fully understand the propulsion system, mm -hmm. but it's like a bunch of explosions or something, and as you see, instead of seeing a uh, normal contrail as you would with a jet, what you see are these um, donut-shaped, Booms, mm -hmm. boom, 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 right. little donuts. Uh, what's going on there? Well, that particular aircraft was the uh, the earliest version of a family of aircraft that later became known in the media as Aurora. Uh, the very first version of this aircraft, um, in fact, the, the very first one that uh, was ever seen was seen, oh, gosh, around 1977, 78. Not long ago. Uh, yeah, it was a, a Lockheed experiment. This particular aircraft had, um, if it were viewed from above, you would say that it had basically the, the plan view of a, a flattened out football shape, except in this particular example. And this, this was something probably about the size of the SR-71 in terms of its overall length, probably about 80 feet long and 65 feet wide. But this particular aircraft uh, had two engines, uh, and it had um, both vertical and ventral stabilizers. That is, that it had a tail that stuck up above the aircraft and mm -hmm. one almost equal in size that stuck down down below it. Mm -hmm. um, just like the uh, the earlier CIA-operated version of the SR-71, which was called the A-12. Um, now, this particular aircraft, as it happens, was seen by a pilot who was flying a Learjet over northern Nevada uh, about that time. And he came out of the clouds at about 10,000 feet, saw this aircraft below and to the left of him. Um, and he called the ground controller that he was in contact with um, and indicated that there was traffic in his vicinity. And he wanted to know why he had not been alerted as to that fact. And the controller swore that there was no traffic in his vicinity. And so with that, he said, well, the hell there isn't. He says, uh, I'll tell you what I'm looking at, this black thing down here shaped like a football flattened out, two tails, one above, one below. Hmm. He says, uh, no wings, a uh, little bubble at one end for a cockpit. And he says, uh, so I've never seen anything like it. And with that, this thing banked away from him, hit the afterburners, and took off like a shot. And he was immediately ordered by the ground controller, who just happened to be at Nellis Air Force Base, 
to fly south and land at Nellis Field and to not step out of his aircraft until told to do so. My, my. And according to this story, he was escorted by military police from the aircraft and spent quite a bit of time in debrief. But he did happen to tell an artist friend of mine by the name of Hal McCormick. And uh, um, so that's how I found, about, found out about that. So do you have a good rendering of this? I do, as a matter of fact. Uh, there was... Um, a, um, a black and white line drawing of this particular, uh, actually the production version of this aircraft, which did not have any tails at all, that was uh, published, and I believe it was uh, November 24th, 1990, somewhere in there, Aviation Week and Space Technology. Oh, no kidding. Um, the Do you have a... Hey, Mark, do you have a website with any of this stuff on it? Well, um, there is a website that has some of my artwork on it that I can give you the address for. It has a bio and my photographs. Please, yeah, give, and, give, uh, we'll get a link up right away. Go ahead. Okay. Well, the address for that um, is uh, the company is called Air Art Northwest. They sell aviation art. Right. Um, you know, aviation prints. I do private commissions, all that kind of stuff. Right. It's on the World Wide Web, so it's www.com. The word, uh, all lowercase letters, air, A-I-R, uh -huh. uh, followed by art, A-R-T, uh -huh. immediately followed by the initials N-W, meaning northwest, and then dot com. Got it. www.airartnw.com. All right, got it. And uh, we, we is that particular rendering up there? Um, I don't think that it is, but uh, I can tell you in order to actually get to the page that uh, includes my work, uh, you would click on to Fine Art Prints and then scroll down to the word McCandlish. And from that point, you should be able to find it fairly easily. But um, if you were to um, search for Aviation Week and Space Technology on the World Wide Web, there's a very good possibility that you might be actually able to pull up the page from this particular issue of Aviation Week. And I believe it was November of 1990 that this was published in. Okay. Um, and they are a McGraw-Hill publication, by the way. All right. So that uh, may help anybody who's searching the web for that. But very good. Going, going on with the description of the aircraft, if I may, um, the final production version was 100 feet long, approximately 70 to 75 feet wide, had the same characteristic football shape, although the, the front end of the vehicle was just a little bit longer uh, than the trailing end of it. Uh, the vehicle has, um, I believe, four main engines. Uh, however, the inlets and the exhaust uh, ports on this uh, vehicle are highly unusual. This, this explains part of the, uh, the donut-shaped uh, exhaust rings and things that you have seen. Uh, some people have even seen um, uh, more of a transitional contrail uh, where the vehicle has gone from one type of propulsion system to another where it's been described as donuts on a rope. It's got to get to a certain altitude before it can begin using one of them? Altitude and speed combined. Okay. Um, this particular aircraft has uh, control surfaces along the leading edge, uh, um, uh, leading edges, and along the trailing edges. And it also has kind of a beaver tail, similar to the uh, the B-2 bomber, sort of a little tab right in the very center that goes up or down. I don't know a lot about uh, aerodynamics, but I'm picturing a flattened football and trying to figure out in my mind how something like that can fly. 
Well, it's all fly-by-wire. In fact, uh, I've even been told that this particular aircraft has the capability of flying completely unmanned um, using kind of a military counterpart of the uh, global positioning system that allows a, an operator sitting on the ground, say, at Nellis Air Force Base or Area 51, to actually control this thing uh, wearing a complete virtual reality headset, oh, uh, sending all its telemetry to control the aircraft uh, via satellite. Is it possible that in future wars we will fight that way with some guy sitting in a console with a virtual reality headset and nobody at all inside the airplane? Are we approaching the end of the, uh, the era of uh, piloted craft? Yes, we are. In fact, uh, there's some indication that we may have already done that previously in the Persian Gulf War that uh, occurred back in, what, 91, 92? Yeah. Um, there were an awful lot of highly unusual sightings uh, by military personnel during the war, including some of these anomalous white balls of light that would zip across the sky and stop on a dime and then take off in another direction. Speeds <laughs> in excess of 5,000 miles an hour. Whoa, 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 whoa. White balls of light? Yes. This was during the Iraq conflict? That's right. I had not heard a word about that. White balls of light that yeah. would do 5,000 miles an hour, stop on a dime, mm -hmm. and do what? Um, well, stop and uh, make a right-angle turn or go off in a completely different direction. Um, these particular vehicles, whatever they were, um, appeared to be functioning... Uh, more in a mode of observation than actual weapons deployment from the people that I've spoken to. Principally, the people that I spoke to as witnesses were people who were functioning as Marines on board the ships that were actually in the Gulf. Um, generally, they were people who were uh, on the deck of the ship late at night uh, watching the surrounding waters for... Uh, for terrorists or uh, sure. you know something similar to an Iraqi SEAL team trying to sneak on the ship to sabotage So it. mainly reconnaissance then? Probably. Uh, in fact, um, you know, many of the films that we saw of, uh, for example, the one I think most people remember is the, uh, the luckiest guy in the world whose truck crosses the bridge right before a, a smart bomb goes in and takes it out. I recall. Well, if you, if you go back and you review any of those films, one of the things that you'll notice right away is the relative movement between the target and the vehicle that is shooting the video is almost nil. I mean, it's, it's almost as though this vehicle, wherever it is, is almost hovering. And I think, personally, I think that's one of the big giveaways of the kind of platform that that video was shot from. Uh-huh. So, but there's, there's also a very strong possibility that, um, as I was starting to mention earlier, that uh, the vehicle that was used was something more akin to a, a very high-tech stealth uh, airship or lighter-than-air vehicle, or L LTAV, as some people call them, uh, kind of like a stealth dirigible or a stealth blimp um, for people who are not familiar with the term. But basically, it's... Uh, a vehicle that's lighter than the surrounding air. It uses a composite material on the outside like uh, Kevlar or carbon fiber. Uh, it's entirely invisible on radar. It can actually be used as a radar listening post because it absorbs the uh, radio frequency energy quite easily. Um, and these things can send back real-time information to the commanders in the field uh, either via video or just pinpointing the source of an anti-aircraft radar that they can then home in onto with a missile and take it out, um, which is one of the real benefits of stealth technology. If you have um, 
you know, an aircraft that can fly into an area and deliver a weapon system, like a smart uh, laser-guided bomb or something, um, and not be seen on radar, uh, it's, it gives you a real psychological advantage against your enemy. Yeah, we're being told that in the coming conflict, probably um, beginning in the next 10 days or so during a new moon at some point or another, mm -hmm. that the percentage of smart bombs and smart things that we are going to use automatic things, is going to be probably 80 or 90 percent compared to about 5 or 10 percent during the Gulf War. That indicates we've come a long way, baby. Well, the accuracy has been increased dramatically. Um, I think that there's probably a lot more accuracy in terms of satellite surveillance. Um, I have a pretty good feeling that not only do they know where the, uh, um, the real chemical weapons and biological weapons are, but I think they have a pretty good handle on how they can get to them in terms of the kinds of weapons that they will have to use. But I was in a conversation earlier today with an individual who told me that chemical weapons actually are ranked uh, a distant fourth on the list of things that they really want to go after. Uh, the first and foremost, uh, apparently, is a, a new advanced uh, technology that's being imported from the forward Soviet Union. Uh, and it involves uh, these uh, so-called scalar electromagnetic pulse weapons. Oh, no. Somewhat similar to the ones that the Russians were offering to help Indonesia with uh, in shutting down a cyclone over an entire area. You bet. That? Oh, boy, do I remember that. I yeah. had the newspaper article. They did indeed make that offer uh, well, to create a cyclone. Now, how, do you, how the hell do you create a cyclone? Well, um... Cyclones in most weather type of formations are really just the the atmosphere's reaction to different temperature and pressure gradients that go through the atmosphere. You've heard of uh, storm systems being referred to as low pressure systems, of things course. like that. Yes. When you heat up an area of the earth or the ocean and the air begins to rise as a consequence of convection, the heat causing the air to rise. You get a storm. Well, if there's a lot of moisture in that area, particularly like uh, the El Nino condition that we see now where the water over the ocean itself or in the ocean is quite warm, then when that low-pressure system uh, occurs, when that reduction in pressure occurs, it draws a lot of moisture into the upper atmosphere, and it does it very quickly. Um, but one of the things that happens as a consequence of that is that it's, uh, it's the water evaporating and becoming a gaseous form and that actually has the effect of cooling the local area down. That's why low-pressure systems tend to be cooler than high-pressure systems. Mm -hmm. High-pressure systems are just the opposite. When you have cold air at altitude that's sinking down and causes compression, and so they actually seem to be a lot warmer uh, than low-pressure systems because there's less of this evaporative effect. But if you have a, a very active, very intense low-pressure system like a cyclone, one of the ways that you can offer to shut that system down is that you use a system that will broadcast or create a tremendous amount of heat directly uh, um, near this system so you have a way of short-circuiting and you can also use this kind of system to create a tremendous amount of cold air directly above the cyclone which will start to sink down upon it and compress it and by compressing it it, it actually sort of crushes the low-pressure system and, and causes the airflow to start going in the other direction. But All right, well, the Russians are saying they now have this technology, not something they might be able to do or uh, anything in the future. They're saying they've got satellites up there now mm -hmm. that can do this. Do you believe that? 
Um, yes, I do. In fact, uh, if you if you talk to the uh, the gentleman from uh, Alaska who's been covering the Harp Project, Doctor Nick Bagage. Nick Bagage. Um, uh, I think that he will certify that uh, the Harp Project can do almost exactly the same thing by stimulating the ionosphere. <laughs> All right, Mark. Hold on. We're at the top of the hour. Scalar weapons. So. We may be concerned that the Iraqis, from our friends, the Russians, may have scalar weapons. Wonderful. Just wonderful. I'm Art Bellin from the high desert. Mark McCandlish is my guest on Coast to Coast AM. In the Kingdom of Nye on the Wild Card Line at area code 702-727-1295. That's area code 702-727-1295. This is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. It is, and my guest is Mark McCandlish, who has been in aeronautics and space for years and years and years. We now have a photograph of Mark McCandlish on our website, and we also have a link to his website, which has some very, very intriguing things on it. So what you might want to do is to go to my website right away and make your way down to Mark McCandlish's photograph and uh, the link. And when you get there, what you will see uh, is a little blue thing that you can click on. And when you do, uh, you'll be taken to Mark McCandlish's website and an opportunity to view all kinds of photographs of um, uh, very exotic aircraft. And we'll cover some of the things that are on that website for you shortly. Also, tomorrow night's guest, Robert McCallum, has the Devil's Hole photograph up, up there. We, we've got a, a seemingly endless deep hole that we are going to explore tomorrow night. We've got photographs of it on the website right now, so that's another good reason for you to go up there. And we have also found the link now to this um, this article accusing me of being in black ops. So we're getting that link up as well. So there's several good reasons for you to go uh, cruising up to my website right now, which is www.artbell.com. We were in the middle of a discussion of scalar weapons uh, when we broke for the hour with Mark McCandlish and the fact that the Iraqis may have scalar weapons. So we'll talk about those more in a moment. Again, Mark McCandlish. Mark? Hi, Art. Uh, what, what in God's name would a scalar we a weapon in, in the hands of somebody uh, who would use it not in a friendly way do? What could you do with a scalar weapon? Well, um, it depends on the power source. Um, a scalar weapon, as um, it has been described by the people who know about these things, um, is a, um, a device that, uh, when used in its proper form, transmits uh, energy directly through hyperspace, almost as though you've created a an artificial wormhole, and you generate this energy, this uh, the scalar energy, and you direct it from two independent sources, both of which can be pumped from the same energy source. In other words, uh, something like a, uh, a nuclear reactor. Um, those two um, forces, those two beams, if you will, yes. uh, go through hyperspace 
and can be coordinated to um, basically join together and become an unleashing of that same amount of energy at the other end. Oh my God. And this can literally be transmitted uh, just about anywhere you want within the local solar system. Uh, if you're able, define for me hyperspace. I know what space is. What is hyperspace? Well, to put it simply, uh, many people have seen the diagram of uh, the way gravity ex affects space-time, where you have something similar to a pliable uh, surface like the surface of a sheet of foam rubber with a grid that's laid on it, right. and you put a bowling ball that weighs a lot in that flexible, pliable surface, and it causes a depression. Correct. And that has been referred to as a curvature or a compression of space-time. Now, just the opposite is true. You can actually uh, expand uh, space-time, which would uh, diagrammatically look like a spike that is rising up off the surface of that pliable cushion, as though you reached down, you pinched a piece of the cushion, and you pulled it up away from the surface, kind of like in the old cartoons where somebody would create a bump on someone's head and pull it up away from the top of their head, that <laughs> kind of thing. Yes. Well... Imagine then that if you could stretch that same chunk of space-time and you could pull it way over to another another spot on the same surface and make it touch down, uh, essentially the tube uh, or, or the, the inside of this material that you have then diagrammatically pulled over and made contact with the same grid, that is representative of what would be called a wormhole. Now, in this case, what you're doing is you're taking... Uh, a type of energy that is being uh, broadcast uh, in the form of a focused beam. Right. You are, in, in, and it can be focused or omnidirectional in all directions at the same time. But it is wherever the interference pattern of those two independent beams come together that it actually unleashes the full amount of the force that was pumped into the two individual broadcasters. Have you ever seen, Mark, the video from STS-50? Mm -hmm. You have? I believe that's the one where there seems to be something flying along uh, in the upper Earth's atmosphere. And no, that's, that's, 40, that's 48. Uh, oh, this is 50. And in STS-50, um, one of the shuttle's external cameras, as they're coming up on the coast of, I believe, South America, Mm -hmm. focuses uh, for a good five minutes on a certain city. I mean, you can see, you know, you, you, you can see the, um, uh, the outline of the continent, you can, and it zooms in, and you can see the lights of the city. Right. And the camera sits there for a good five minutes, Mark, mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden you see this <laughs> incredible um, blast of light or energy ball-like thing mm -hmm. flash up from the Earth, uh, into uh, into space, mm -hmm. and it's obvious that the shuttle was wanting to take a picture of this and knew it was going to happen. Mm. Is that something that might be a scalar weapon? Well, it's possible. However, the uh, the description you just gave sounds an awful lot like uh, what was being described back in the 1980s as an X-ray laser that is pumped by a nuclear blast. This particular type of weapon system has the ability to deliver almost the entire energy output of a nuclear weapon via an X-ray laser beam. Uh, and the interesting thing about it is that 
the weapon system actually has to use the electromagnetic nuclear pulse from a nuclear explosion to stimulate the X-ray laser and fire it. But in the process, it actually destroys itself, too, which could explain the flash on the ground and then this incredible pulse of energy that zips out past the space shuttle. Uh, there is no question about what I saw. Of course, I have no idea what it is, but I know that I saw it, and I have that tape now. Um, what makes you think that the Iraqis might have scalar weapons of any sort? Uh, the Russians? Well, this, this particular piece of information came to me just today, in fact, um, and it came to me from a source that is well-versed in this kind of technology, and uh, at this point I'm not sure that it's it would be appropriate for me to disclose uh, right. the individual's name. But as I was saying earlier, uh, the chemical weapons are actually uh, probably number four, a distant fourth on the list of high-priority targets that we're going to be concerned about in here. Biological, certainly, um, and nuclear, yes. uh, certainly. And that's, and that's about the order, the scalar weapons, biological weapons, nuclear weapons, and chemical weapons in that descending order. Um, the nuclear weapons, we know that he has publicly displayed the fact that he has nuclear triggers. Uh, we know that he has been trying desperately to get a hold of weapons-grade material on the black market from um, people who were formerly involved uh, in the Soviet's uh, military programs. Uh, we know that both France and uh, Russia have been uh, helping him uh, to, in fact, I think even Germany has participated in some of the chemical productions and the facilities that help to produce uh, some of the chemical weapons. Uh, but probably uh, after the, the potential threat of scalar, high-tech scalar weapons, which, by the way, permit him to... Uh, wreak uh, massive destruction on the United States without ever leaving home. Um, how but, how uh, would that... Let me understand how that would be done. How would that be done, Mark? Uh, in other words, how would a scalar weapon deliver um, um, a, an impact or a destruction to, a, say, a U.S. city or region okay. from um, Iraq? How would that happen? Well, um Imagine that you have a frog sitting on a lily pad in a pond, yeah. and you want to pick that particular spot in the pond as your target. Right. Then you go to another spot, two other spots in that pond, and you drop a very, very large rock in the water. And this may be 100 yards away. Uh, but you drop those two big rocks at different spots, and you do it simultaneously, and you do it in such a way that when those waves that are the ripples that spread outward in a circular ring, when concentric they, rings that spread outward, where they meet, where that interference pattern meets, it'll knock the frog right off that lily pad. And that's essentially what a scalar weapon does, is it uses a nuclear power source like a nuclear reactor, and it pumps two transmitters with the power from that source. That power is then broadcast uh, sometimes in the form of a beam and sometimes as a uh, an omnidirectional signal. But the, the timing of the pulse is such that you pick your distant target, and the distant target is the point at which these uh, waves, if you will, come into phase with one another and actually begin to reinforce one another. Mark, does this have to be space-based or can it be ground-based? It can be either. Ah, oh, brother. In fact, there's even evidence that the Soviets were using this back as early as 1964. 
uh, right after the Soviet uh, the missile crisis in Cuba. Um, there are a number of earmarks, uh, signatures, if you will, that um, uh, give off the um, well. It will basically tell you that that kind of a system is used, and it was also seen in Vietnam. And one of the most outstanding signatures of this particular uh, device being used is that all of the electrical systems in an aircraft or in the local geographical area fail simultaneously without explanation. And it's basically basically because the local environment is being pumped with so much air energy. It, it's exactly like an electromagnetic nuclear pulse. It can blow out generators. It can uh, fry the electrical systems of an aircraft. It can even make uh, the fuel in an aircraft explode spontaneously. Um, and, in fact, there is uh, quite a bit of evidence that uh, TWA Flight N-100 uh, may, in fact, have been hit with what would be Scalar referred to as, uh, as an electromagnetic missile. Yeah. Good Lord. Uh, yeah. There, there was a whole string, actually, of very interesting aircraft accidents, one down in South America where the pilot lost all nav navigation ability. Mm -hmm. um, and a number of reports coming from planes that fly the northwest route toward Japan uh -huh. that have lost um, all navigation ability, mm -hmm. uh, even satellite, yeah. which is virtually impossible. And you think it's this kind of thing going on? Uh, it's very likely, and, and one of the indicators that that may be so is that uh, the Soviet Union for a long time had a facility that uh, was using this technology, and it was based on the Kamchatka Peninsula, right. which you may recall is the very peninsula that uh, I think it was Korean Airlines Flight uh, 007 uh, was carrying, overflying. Uh, carrying Senator John Towers uh, happened to stray over because of a navigational error. Um, you know, if you have an aircraft that is using electrical systems like that that strays into the beam path of a weapon system like that is being used, even at a low power level, uh, it's possible to uh, completely disrupt the navigation of the aircraft, in fact, make the aircraft think that it's somewhere else. Um, and uh, But uh, if, if you are in the process of... Um, stimulating an area with low power levels of energy emission uh, using a system like this, uh, one of the ways that you begin to acquire and and determine the accuracy of your, your system is by creating a lot of smaller little disruptions in the environment, uh, a power failure over uh, Niagara Falls, uh, an extremely uh, a strong storm system that uh, goes through Houston, Texas, uh, an electrical power failure over an entire area of Hawaii, um, things like that. Uh, and that's one of the ways, uh, particularly if you have observers on the ground who can stand there and watch what's going on and say, yep, okay, we're right on the money with this one, and they dial it in. And it's even uh, been described as uh, um, producing a kind of grid or a network over that overlays the United States that would allow them to um, pull up coordinates and target exactly an area that they, that they want to destroy. Mark, uh, there have been several Western power failures uh, where the entire grid went down, virtually from Canada, way up into Canada, down into Mexico, affecting mm -hmm. about the western third of the United St uh, States. Mm -hmm. And in each case, and there have been two or three of them, they have never really found the source of the failure. And the whole idea of the grid in the first place is to isolate a failure and not take everything down. Mm -hmm. The whole idea failed miserably, and 
Could this be one thing that would uh, explain that? I would say so. I would say that it is. And uh, you're right. You're absolutely right. Uh, in fact, the only difference between the more recent power failures and the one that occurred back in, I think it was 1967, um, the, the power plant from Niagara was that the grid system wasn't quite as effective on the eastern seaboard. And, and what happened was that many of the systems that did remain online became overloaded and as a consequence shut down and, and um, you know, redirected the, the power requirements to other members in the grid, and they in turn became overloaded, so the whole system began to collapse upon itself like a house of cards. But the system, uh, the, the failures, I, I believe there was a major power failure about two years ago that ran right, right through our general area here, and uh, I don't think that it was power uh, weather-related. Let, uh, me, let me remind you of what went on, because I was on the air during that power failure, Mark, mm -hmm. and I'll tell you what occurred. There were two reports of what people thought to be large meteorites mm -hmm. uh, exactly at the moment the power failed. Two. Uh, the, yeah, two of them, and they were seen along the West Coast. Well, that's a key right there. Two independent surges of power that are basically in the process of coming out of hyperspace and joining into what would be called a vector wave and unleashing that electromagnetic pulse on the local environment. The average American person sitting out there right now is saying, give me a break, Buck Rogers City, this stuff really can't be going on. What do you say? Well, I know it's unbelievable. Um, there are a lot of people who discount the whole idea of uh, scalar weapons and zero-point energy, things like that, that are all based on the same kinds of of um, technology and scientific development, uh, the Soviets, unfortunately, have been far ahead of us in this field for a very long time, and we're still in the process of playing catch-up now. Um, the same source that I spoke to today indicated that there are several other countries that uh, have this technology and been researching it fervently for a very long time, and I believe that uh, Israel and France are at least two of those countries that have the technology right now. And... Uh, the uh, the statement was made that uh, they have actually saved our butt on a couple of occasions by uh, basically picking up the signal that's coming out of the Soviet Union or from another source mm -hmm. and uh, putting another uh, pulse back into the signal so that it went back to the source and overloaded the source. And the allegation was made that this is the very reason that Chernobyl blew up was that it was the power source for one of these uh, scalar weapons broadcast facilities, uh -huh. and it was overloaded. And it was turned back on Chernobyl. Yep. Oh, my. Uh, in fact, back in uh, the early 1900s, Nikola Tesla was conducting experiments in the same kind of technology at Colorado Springs, and one of the significant events that occurred while he was experimenting with his so-called artificial lightning was that uh, he was able to send pulses of electricity back through the system that overloaded and blew out the generators at the local hydroelectric facility. Uh, if we assume for the sake of this conversation that the Iraqis have such a site or sites, uh, you are convinced we know where they are. How good is our satellite reconnaissance? I've always wondered about that. We've got this cage series of satellites and maybe even more by now. What do I know? How good is it? Well, um, to 
respond to your first statement as far as they're actually having it. Um, my source indicates that they will be online with this kind of system probably within the next three months, probably no sooner than three months. And so President Clinton has really uh, got a window in which he has to, to act. I think I understand. All right, uh, Mark. Hold uh, on. We're at the bottom of the hour okay. here. We'll, we'll be right back. We've got plenty of time. This is radio. I'm Art Bell. Mark McCandlish is here. This is Coast to Coast AM. Kingdom of Nye from outside the U.S. First, dial your access number to the USA. Then, 800-893-0903. If you're a first-time caller, call Art at 702-727-1222. From east of the Rockies, 1-800-825-5033. West of the Rockies, including Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, and New Mexico. Call Art at 1-800-618-8255. Or call Art on the Wild Card Line at area code 702-727-1295. This is Coast to Coast AM from the Kingdom of Nye. And the reason I just put all those numbers out is that we are going to shortly begin to take calls for Mark McCandlish. Wherever you are, we're talking and we'll continue to talk for a few moments about scalar weapons. And then we're going to touch on anti-gravity. And then it's going to be your turn. Just tell them you want the Ultra Team. The one Art Bell has on his Hot Rod Metro. Call one 800-627-8800. It's like a heart transplant for your car. I can never get that right. My little hot rod metro. That's true, though. It really is true. It goes over that hill now and forth. It never did that. It always had to go to third, occasionally in a full load, even second. Um, all right. Let us pick up roughly where we left off from Dave in Milwaukee. The following art scalar weapons are based on the work of Nikola Tesla. Could you please ask Mark to comment on Tesla's contributions to the area? Uh, so that kind of picks us up where we were, uh, Mark. Uh, what about it, Tesla? Well, what did he really do? Uh, well, uh, it's hard to separate the myth from the reality with Tesla. Well, one of the uh, one of the interesting um, types of electrical devices that Nikola Tesla had come up with uh, was one that just about everybody's familiar with, but very few people realized that he was the creator of. It was a kind of an open-air transformer that was referred to as a Tesla coil. It's the kind of thing that they used for special effects back in the, uh, the 40s and the 50s for all the old Frankenstein movies in the laboratory, the mad scientists, the lightning bolts zipping across the room and that kind of thing. And of course. Basically, it's just a way of taking a certain amount of electricity, say... Uh, 
you know, the kind of electricity you get out of the wall, 120 volts AC, and um, uh, through a transformer, stepping the voltage up to maybe a couple hundred thousand volts, but the amperage uh, drops way down so that uh, it really doesn't become any more dangerous than, you know, sticking your finger in an outlet. But, lots uh, and lots of voltage. You. <laughs> lots and lots of voltage, no current. It'll stand your hair on in, that kind of deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, one of the things, one of the eventual developments from that kind of research was a uh, discovery by Tesla that the Earth itself is actually in what they call electrical resonance. Um, that just like sound uh, and the ability to, say, uh, make uh, a tuning fork at one end of the table begin to vibrate if you strike another tuning fork and put it firmly on the opposite end of the table. Right. Forced vibration, I think, is the term they use for that. Electricity is kind of the same way. It's the whole idea behind... Um, Are you referring to the Schumann resonance frequency or, or what is said to be the frequency of the Earth itself? Well, that's, I think that's, uh, that would be one of the things that uh, Tesla did some work with, and I believe that you are speaking about the same thing, if I'm not mistaken. But the Earth itself is in electrical resonance, just like uh, being able to achieve the same kind of forced vibration in a tuning fork. You can do the same thing with electrical systems. It's kind of the same principle that wireless radio broadcasts are based on. You send out a, a broadcast of a particular frequency, like a particular frequency of sound in a tuning fork, and you have a receiver at the other end that is tuned to that same particular frequency and will resonate with it, and then that signal can be amplified and you get sound, just like the people listening on the radio now. Okay. Well, in, in the case of Nikola Tesla, he found that because the Earth itself was in electrical resonance, that there was a way to stimulate or put a pulse of energy into that electrical resonating system. And if you had just the right kind of transmitter and just the right kind of receiver, you could stick an antenna into the ground and have free energy right out of the ground. All right, that was the good Tesla. The bad Tesla that I've heard about actually claimed to be able to create earthquakes. In fact, there's some documentation indicating he did create an earthquake. Well, um, there there is a device. In fact, if you if you write for the catalog uh, that's available from the International Tesla Society, uh, based in Colorado Springs, uh, you can get uh, the original patents for the device. And it's uh, it's actually a rather small device. It uh, I think it involves a um, uh, a sort of uh, solenoid type of mechanism. And the idea is that you say if you have a brick building, that brick building has a certain resonant frequency. Um, and basically what this little device does is it's, it's very much like a little electrically stimulated hammer that, that will pound on the side of the building and then it'll sit there and it'll listen for the echo of that sound to come resonating back to the point of origin. And the moment that it does, it will begin to time that echo so that each time the pulse goes out again, it also strikes another blow. And so that each time it goes out, it turns into a feedback loop where you're getting more and more energy that is being added to that pulse and that echo, and it begins to hit the resonant frequency of the entire building and will cause it to shatter just like a crystal glass. Good Lord. Now, the same thing is true of the Earth. I mean, you have uh, all kinds of crystalline structures in the, in the crust of the Earth, quartz and, and other kinds of crystals, which, of course, produce piezoelectric or piezoelectric uh, um, uh, uh, pulses that come out during earthquakes. It's one of the reasons for the so-called earthquake lights 
when you have this tremendous crushing and grinding pressure of quartz and other types of crystalline uh, uh, structures in the surface of the earth grinding against under, uh, one another under extreme pressure, you actually get electricity that comes right out of the ground. And sometimes we'll even uh, have the, in fact, there's some research now that uh, some of the the uh, UFO sightings associated with earthquakes are actually a manifestation of this. It's almost like a ball lightning. All right. Um, I want to move on very quickly to something that I think is very exciting. Okay. Uh, talking about anti-gravity, in your bio, last line, it says, last paragraph, says, Mr. McCandlish believes that he has assembled enough technical data regarding the construction of a working anti-gravity propulsion system mm -hmm. that he plans to build one in the near future. You're going to build one, Mark? That's the plan. What is it you're going to build? Well, um, you know, if you if you go back and you research the patents that are available through the patent office, and this is something that I've done um, not only through the patent office but through various publications, you'll find uh, mention of um, the research that was done by a scientist uh, uh, by the name of uh, Thomas Townsend Brown. He and a professor Beefield uh, discovered something referred to as the Beefield-Brown effect. Now, this was actually discovered uh, probably back in the late 1920s, early 1930s. Uh, in fact, there is some indication that uh, Thomas Townsend Brown had uh, some kind of uh, um, intellectual correspondence with Nikola Tesla. But the discovery was that if you take parallel plate capacitors, that's basically um, copper plates that are separated by some kind of heavy insulator like glass or plastic or something of that uh, nature. Right. And you put a sufficient amount of high voltage electricity onto those plates with uh, one plate being positive and one plate being negative. Right. Or a multitude of plates that are stacked up upon one another with the same kind of insulation in between where you have... A layering. A layering of negative, positive, negative, positive, negative, positive. And you, you have uh, one circuit that's uh, uh, basically uh, dedicated to the negative side of uh, something like a Tesla coil and the other side being dedicated to the positive side of the, the energy circuit uh, that you can actually see a reduction in mass of the capacitor itself. It will begin to levitate. Now, I believe there have been experiments already uh, along this line. In Finland, yeah. was it? I believe the Finnish, yes. Well, in Finland, what they were using was a slightly different process, and they were using a uh, ceramic compound that involved, um, I think it was three or four components. I believe they were uh, yttrium, barium, and copper oxide. Uh, it was a development, I think, that came out of the Dow um, chemical company a number of years ago, but they took three, uh, as I understand it, three wafers of this uh, semi or uh, superconducting ceramic material, um, found a way of suspending them in a, a very strong electromagnetic field that basically uh, wrapped around this uh, column that the three wafers were, were uh, suspended in. Right. And then they spun the three superconducting wafers in opposite directions. The the bottom one spun in one direction, the next one up spun in the opposite direction, and the, and the one above that spun in the direction of the original wafer. And the net effect was? The net effect was they were seeing about a 2.5% reduction in mass of anything that was located above this apparatus, uh, including mm -hmm. in objects that were several stories uh, above it in the same building. Do you believe that you have the materials? 
that you would need to actually construct a working model of a propulsion system that would defy gravity? Well, actually, uh, as it turns out, uh, this kind of goes back to arts parts. Uh, you may remember Linda Howe's uh, discussion about this uh, uh, laminated uh, material that was made up of uh, 200 micron thin layers of a, a magnesium zinc alloy that was 97% magnesium and 3% zinc. Of course. Separated by 4 micron layers of pure bismuth. Bismuth, yeah, that's right. Well, as it turns out, pure bismuth, is almost the same sort of material that they uh, make solder out of, the type of solder you use to uh, con make electrical connections when you're uh, you know, building an electrical yes. circuit. Yes, oh, yes. It has a very low melting temperature. Uh, it's the same kind of stuff that they use to seal up and repair radiators. Now, as it turns out, um, the, the question about arts parts, as I recall it, was how can or who is uh, who is making this laminated material? How can it be made? Uh, and I'd actually written a letter to, uh, to Linda, um, I think it was well over a year ago. I think well, you, you, you must know, uh, Linda approached every national lab. Mm -hmm. Linda approached every manufacturer of rare metals mm -hmm. and, uh, got absolutely nowhere. There were even a couple that tried to reproduce it without luck. Mm -hmm. Well, as it turns out, um, I got out my Aviation Week and Aerospace uh, Aerospace Directory that lists all the different companies in the uh, in the country that make different alloys and and uh, uh, materials. And in fact, I passed this information along to uh, to Linda Howe also. Uh, and there was a company I found in Pomona, California, right near where I used to work at General Dynamics. In fact, that could get me a, a 200 micron thick, or that's about eight thousandths of an inch. Um, uh, foil that was 97% magnesium and 3% zinc. Huh. And so the the only requirement remaining was to find a way to put that together. Well, if if you look at bismuth as a uh, material that has a very low melting temperature, all you have to realize is that, that if you heat it up enough, it's going to spread out into a very thin layer if you put it under a lot of pressure, say like between two steel plates. And so I initially devised uh, a system where I would take uh, bismuth in the form of a powder right. and I would sprinkle it between multiple layers of this magnesium zinc foil. I would take a couple of heavy steel half-inch thick uh, plates uh, with a number of threaded holes around the edges and I would uh, clamp these two plates together using a set of heavy-duty Chevrolet valve springs <laughs> <laughs> and I'd put it in the oven at 600 degrees let the bismuth melt and spread out between the individual layers of the magnesium zinc foil right. and the added pressure of these uh, high heavy-duty valve springs would keep the pressure on so that even after this whole uh, lamination began to sort of sink down and squeeze out the excess bismuth, um, I would have, uh, you know, a nice flat plate made of this lamination. Well, um, it turned out a friend of mine gave me a subscription to... Uh, uh, one of these publications that kind of uh, alerts the uh, the aerospace industry to all these these new machines that are available and so forth. And here I found a uh, an information uh, packet about a machine that will use a a vat of any kind of molten material, whether it's uh, metallic or plastic or whatever, and you can run uh, rollers with uh, up to 18 inches wide of any kind of foil or material that you want to down into this vat, it will 
quickly coat the uh, upper and, and uh, both surfaces of the foil, and then it gives you the ability to then combine that strand or that length of foil with other lengths of foil that are then pressed together through a set of rollers while the material that it's been dipped in is still hot and wet or molten. And uh, so it gives you a much more efficient way of manufacturing this very same kind of material. Uh, and you could even gauge the thickness of the the uh, the binder or the the uh, the material that's melted and is is uh, distributed over the outside of the material. Um, I think one of the things that Linda had been searching for was um, offshoots of the so-called vacuum vapor deposition process, where you you put your individual layers of foil or or the substrate material, as it's sometimes called, uh, into a, a vacuum chamber, and then you use a a high temperature, uh, almost like an arc welder device that sprays vaporized metal That's right. uh, onto the material. And because the material, the substrate material, is colder, it can basically condenses onto the surface of that material. It's um. All right, you're gonna you're gonna begin to lose people a little, okay. a little bit because you're almost losing me. Well, so anyway, you you construct essentially. Um, the plates of the capacitor blade, uh, the different the different, different uh, capacitor plates are constructed out of the same kind of uh, magnesium zinc lamination. Let's say you got it all put together. Mm-hmm. Bottom, bottom line here. Right. What would you expect to be able to do uh, with regard to when, when you say anti gravity? I mean, mm-hmm. would you would you have a small device that would rise into the air magically? Would you have something that you could install into? For better uh, lack of a better word, a saucer type uh, vehicle, and actually lift off. What do you practically imagine could be done? Well, um, the proposal, as I'm outlining it for my prototype, basically uses a 12-foot uh, television satellite dish as the uh, structure that the capacitor sections will be installed upon. Right. As you know, the, it's like a big umbrella. You have all these veins that go out to support the structure of this dish. We'll divide each one of those little sections into three small, almost like pizza pie thin slices or very long isosceles triangles and make each one of them a capacitor section and then set up a high voltage source like a, uh, a Van de Graaff generator, which is basically just a big, um, right. a big uh, fan belt on a pair of plastic rollers and it has uh, some uh, copper wires that stroke across the surface of the fan belt as it spins at very high speed right. and it creates static electricity. Well, you can buy one from Edmund Scientific yep. for 400 bucks. It'll put out almost half a million volts. Now, if you run that half a million volts through a Tesla coil that jumps it up to over a million, now you're really in business. And what you do is you have a, a rotating spark gap at the bottom of this central column that houses your Van de Graaff generator. Yes, sir. And then you have a control mechanism that allows you to control where that electricity goes on the dish to each one of these little sections. If you want it to go straight up, you put the same amount of energy on each one of your little capacitors. If you want it to curve to the right or curve to the left, then you just create uh, a, a way of giving that side of the vehicle a little bit more electricity and thereby creating a little bit more of an electrical push, if you will, more levitation. So that is how you're able to achieve directional control is by controlling the amount of electricity that goes into the different capacitor sections. Now, All right. Uh, uh, then what would you be able to lift? 
Well, um, according to one scientist who I've spoken with who seems to know a lot about this, it takes about 1,500 watts of power to lift six pounds. So if you're dealing with something that's uh, one, one and a half, two million volts, uh, that's distributed over, say, 24 to 48 individual capacitor sections, all of which stores that potential. Right. Um, it may be possible to lift as much as a thousand pounds and do it very quickly. Uh, straight up and straight out up. and out if you wanted to. Yes. Good Lord. When do you think you might get around to actually beginning construction of something like this? Well, it could be sooner than you think. Um, I've got a friend who's involved in. Um, shall we say, some very, very uh, big real estate deals, and he's in, in the process of uh, putting together a uh, a multi, multi-million dollar deal for uh, an agency, and uh, it looks as though I may have actually be able to piggyback a research and development grant right off of that particular uh, transaction. How much money and time do you need to do it? Um I believe I could do it in less than a year, and I initially felt that I could do it for less than $10,000, but one of the things about the system is that you, um, and this goes back to the whole Roswell story, do you remember the story about um, how they found fiber optics? Oh, of course I do. Uh, you're going to have to hold on. We're oh, at a break Lord, point here. Sorry. Yeah, that's right. Uh, hold on. Mark McCandlish is my guest. We're, we're talking actually about anti-gravity, about building an anti-gravity device. Soon on the cheap. is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. From east of the Rockies, call Art at 1-800-825-5033. West of the Rockies, including Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, and New Mexico, at 1-800-618-8255. First-time callers may reach Art at area code 702-727-1222. And you may fax Art at area code 702-727-8499. Please limit your faxes to one or two pages. This is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. Now again, here's Art. Once again, here I am. Somebody writes, scalar weapons, doomsday stuff, question mark, anti-gravity. Can you imagine that? We have a man here who claims that uh, with uh, X number of thousands of dollars, maybe 10, 20, 30, I don't know, at about a year's time, he'll be able to lift a thousand pounds off the ground uh, with the only propulsion system being an electrical one, producing anti-gravity. To lose, but the fact. All right, I promise we're about to go to the phones. I got this fax that I want to read. Art, please don't use my name. This stuff was top secret at the time. You know the government. I was also in the USAF in the late 60s and early 70s, worked special ops wing in North Carolina. We had what was probably the first operational stealth aircraft, a C-130, 
with lead-based radar absorption paint, including the props, shaft dispensers, ECM, and the APQ-99 forward and side-looking radar from the F-111 connected to the autopilot for low-level flight. It also included a personnel, get this, a personnel extraction system called the Fulton Recovery System to pick up special ops operatives in the jungle. These poor guys went into Laos, Cambodia, North Vietnam with Swedish weapons, no ID, jungle fatigues. We would pick them up by dropping a package to them with a helium balloon, lots of line, and a harness, water ride out. You were in the Air Force at the time and know what you saw as our capability then. All I'm saying is that we were 20 or 30 years ahead of technology then. What we must have now would be really amazing. This scalar weapon you're talking about tonight is pretty frightening. Ed Dames talks about a scenario soon to happen where the upper atmosphere is damaged slash burned and a great change takes place in civilization as we know it. Please ask Mark what kind of a mess this weapon or a weapon like it could do to our world environment, Mark. Well, it could. Uh, it's uh, conceivable that a weapon system of this kind, if it wasn't uh, destroyed in time, could uh, literally um, damage the Earth um, to the point where uh, the polar ice caps would melt, um, the coastline of most countries would change dramatically, 75% of the world's population lives within 20 miles of the coast in just about every country that has an ocean uh, That's right. a coastline. Um, and you would see uh, death, starvation, and um, pestilence like uh, you've never seen it before. See, now you're sounding like Ed Dames. <laughs> well, you know, I, I have to admit that on occasion, I and I listen to Ed Dames quite a bit. I've corresponded with him. Um, and uh, I, I think that uh, the title Dr. Doom is well-deserved, and I've been skeptical on, on occasion. But um, at the same time, I realize that there are weapon systems out there that if placed in the wrong hands, and believe me, I think uh, placing something like this in the hands of Saddam Hussein is the biggest mistake that the Soviet Union or the KGB or the Russian government could ever make. Uh, and right. I don't care how much oil they'd get for free. It's a big mistake. I understand. All right. Uh, if, if it's okay with you, Art, I'd like to backtrack for just a second to tie up a couple of loose ends. Yeah, go ahead. Um, that thing on the Aurora that was published in Aviation Week was actually published a month later than I thought, December 24th, 1990, um, page 41. Uh, a similar full-color illustration appeared also in the um, about a year later in the December 1991 issue of Popular Mechanics magazine, uh, the cover story was uh, top secret uh, regarding the so-called uh, um, T3 top secret aircraft, and the Aurora illustrations appear on page 35 in that issue. Now, All right. you had spoken about donut-shaped contrails and things right. like that. That basically comes from the the uh, shifting from the internal engines that I described before that have trapdoor. Uh, Nacoduct-style inlets and trapdoor exhaust ports that all close up at the moment that it transitions from the internal engines to an external burning mechanism uh, running uh, across the top and the bottom of the fuselage of this vehicle are 
thousands and thousands of uh, what looked like fuel injectors pointing towards the rear of the uh, aircraft. Right. And when this thing gets up above Mach 2.5, Mach 3, you get a, uh, a supersonic shock wave that uh, forms along the leading edges and uh, coming up over the top and the bottom of the vehicle. And uh, where these fuel injectors are located, uh, there is a ridge, and the shock wave separates from the surface of the vehicle at that point, and they basically spray a pulse of fuel into that superheated shock wave of air, and it explodes spontaneously, and it expands between the supersonic shock wave and the tapered afterbody or, or tail section of the aircraft, and basically squeezes it like pinching a wet pumpkin seed. Fact, so, in other words, you're you're literally propelling yourself along with explosions. That's right, and that's what that pulsing sound is. Ah. Now, when these things are at altitude, the pulse may last for about five seconds. You know, it'll be a constant stream of fuel for about five seconds. And then there'll be a pause for approximately 10 seconds. Now, I've actually seen this thing flying over the Reading area, coming up out of uh, Area 51, headed towards uh, the, the Gulf of Alaska. Now, on this particular occasion, it was, uh, I guess it was in 1993, 1994, it was right about the time that the North Korean president, Kim Il-sung, uh, was on his deathbed, and the yes. U.S. government was not certain what would happen as a result of his death, whether his son would take over, whether he would try to start a war with South Korea. And so they had these vehicles flying over our area approximately every 20 minutes. And then again, early, early in the morning, you could see them going back into the southeast from this area, uh, back towards Area 51, but that was one of the things that you could you could see even through the binoculars was this fuel igniting uh, with a, uh, a a pause of roughly 10 seconds in between. All right, I've got a million people who want to ask okay. questions, so we've got to do that. But I just have one more question for you, okay. very short one. Uh, Mark, if you do virtually invent anti gravity, what will you do with it? Well, uh, as it turns out, there is something called the the X Prize. Uh, there is a foundation that has established a prize of $10 million, and it's even being sponsored by some of the people that are in NASA, like Buzz Aldrin, and uh, um, uh, there's another astronaut. I, his, I think his name is Lichtenberg. Um, and uh, they are basically going to put a prize up for anyone who can assemble a team and demonstrate a technology, even if it's a spin-off of the older existing technology, that will make commercialization of space a viable um, business venture. So, in other now, words, you'll, uh, you'll collect your $10 million prize and virtually give it to the world. Well, um, you got to remember, I'm not the first one to do this. The military has had this kind of stuff since at least 1967. Well, not, not that I've seen. Well, uh, you know, if, if you if you look at some of the, and you have to remember, there's a whole segment of this story that we've discussed on previous shows that we haven't even touched on here, namely the fact that uh, I know people who've actually seen the saucers and hangars at uh, Norton Air Force Base and Edwards Air Force Base and other places dating as far back as 1973. Well, then what the hell are we doing launching shuttles with uh, uh, liquid uh, chemical propellants? Well, it keeps a lot of people employed. <laughs> All right. uh, what was it uh, Richard Hoagland said, that it's a, a great uh, uh, jobs program or something like that? Well, of course it is. First time caller line, you're on the air with Mark McCandless. Hello. Hello, Art. Yes, sir, where are you? I'm in Rochester, New York. Okay. Is Yes. 
Uh, you're a polite host, and I'm not going to be so polite. Uh, even, uh, Mark, I want to pin you down on your belief in uh, UFOs and extraterrestrial uh, technology. Uh, okay, go ahead. You kind of veered off every time you were pinpointed on it. Well, okay, ask uh, your question. Uh, what do you do? You believe in the uh, extraterrestrial technology that we've acquired from the so-called Roswell incident? All right, and, uh, all right, that, that that's fine. Um, look, do I believe it exists? Yes. Yes. Um, as a matter of fact, I have. Uh, we were talking earlier about arts parts. A lot of this audience has no idea what those are. They were sent to me anonymously a long time ago. I retain some of them. Linamult Howe has some of the parts. And Whitley Strieber, nobody knows that until now, has a sample of, of this as well. It was tested by just about every lab you could imagine. Um, and it looks like it's an anti-gravitic material. So where did it come from? Well, we know it came from 1947 and from Roswell, or we think we know that. Mm -hmm. Now, he said, he, it just straight up, do you believe that we have alien technology that we have back-engineered and we are using? That's a straight-up question. Yeah, I do. Absolutely. Okay, well, that, there's no weaseling there. If, if, I, could, if I could kind of elaborate, uh, one of the ways that I tried to test the idea of uh, the U.S. military having um, acquired so-called alien technology was that once I had been told in 1988 from a personal friend who'd actually seen this technology in a hangar at Norton Air Force Base during the course of an air show in which he was in the presence of Senator Alan Cranston and Congressman George E. Brown, Jr., yes. uh, that, uh, you know, I, I knew then that obviously we had something that was fairly unique. Was uh, He was even referred to as an alien reproduction vehicle. So my next step was to try and find people who claimed to be uh, victims of the so-called abduction phenomenon and without previously telling them what the technology looked like, as far as I was aware, right. asked them to describe uh, what, if any, propulsion system components they had seen. And in every single case where I found what I believed to be a legitimate example of the abduction phenomenon, I had people describing a central column that was wound by copper coils that had some kind of a liquid or gas flowing through it, there was some kind of a flywheel mechanism that was either mounted halfway up the the uh, column or at, at its base, that there were copper coils that wrapped around the exterior of the crew compartment that was uh, in the immediate vicinity of this, this column. And basically what you were looking at there are the primary and the secondary windings of a Tesla coil with, with, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> with some kind of a, uh, a generator uh, in the middle of that central column. Now, in, in the case of the military system, and, and I've uh, acquired this information in interfacing with uh, Dr. Fred Bell, who you've had on your show a number of times. Indeed. Um, it turns out that the military version of this vehicle is a lot more sophisticated than what I'm proposing. I mean, it goes far beyond using a Van de Graaff generator and a couple of electric motors and batteries. The military version uses a uh, plutonium dioxide uh, 238 uh, power source which uh, when, you, when you have just enough material below critical mass, the radioactive decay of the material will actually cause a, a ball, say 11 and a half or 12 pounds of this material, to glow red hot. And you can generate steam with that. 
And when you generate steam, you can drive a turbine, which goes through a transmission, turns the flywheel to stabilize the vehicle, but it also drives a high-voltage electrical generator right. that you then power the Tesla coil with, etc. Which, again, is exactly what you described earlier as what yeah. will be anti-gravity. All right, I, I interviewed Dr. Fred Bell, and I found him to be a fascinating individual. Yes. His claim is that he has built a time machine. Now, his claim further is that he took this machine probably 30 seconds into the future and uh, operated at one time, and I said, Doctor, what was there? What was 30 seconds in the future? And his answer was, absolutely nothing. Blackness. A void. Um, are you familiar with that aspect of uh, uh, Dr. Bell? Yes. I, in fact, I listened to, very intently to that program. In fact, uh, he is in the process of putting the finishing touches on the publication of a new book. And forgive me that I don't know what the title of it will be, but um, I uh, have seen some of his illustrations depicting the system that he created and described on your program. And uh, there were some remarkable similarities between that and the system that I'm proposing as a flying vehicle. In, uh, then in how do you know that when you create this, Mark, you're not going to create instead uh, something that is going to warp space and time and you and a lot of other things around it? Well, actually, that's, that's the, the, the byproduct of the, the function of the craft. It does, in fact, warp space and time. In fact, what it does is it, it expands space-time below the vehicle and compresses it above the vehicle, uh, and that is a byproduct of mass cancellation. Yes, but I can imagine that if something is not quite right and the fields don't go where you expect them to, mm -hmm. that the you thing could flip over like a top that's out of balance. And, uh, well, it could, and it could take you with it. That's true. All right. Wildcard Line, you're on the air with Mark McCandlish. Hello. Hello, Art. Uh, this is Brett calling from Ohio. Yes, sir. And uh, I have two questions. Uh, he was talking about taking energy from the ground. Oh, oh, the Tesla business, yes. Yeah, is that uh, anything like zero-point energy? Okay. Uh, is, uh, do you have another question? Yeah, my, my other question is, is that I've read uh, a couple of different stories about the Tesla harnessing uh, zero-point energy, uh, tachyon energy. Right. And, I'm, and I was wondering if uh, your guests knew anything about that. All right. Um, it, really, it's the same question. Pretty much. What the hell is zero-point energy, and how would you tap into it? Well, um, first let me answer uh, the, the previous question. Was he able to create a power system that used this? Uh, there are some people that believe that the tower, the broad, power broadcasting tower that Tesla had proposed and was preparing to build at Warden Cliff, New York on Long Island, was in fact going to be the prototype for such a system. Now, it's my understanding that one of the people who uh, basically funded all of his experiments was J.P. Morgan, who unfortunately died in the sinking of the Titanic. And after that point, okay. Nikola Tesla was practically penniless. Um, so I suppose you can generate another conspiracy based on that, too. But the idea was that he was going to try and use the electrical resonance of the Earth and create uh, basically an electrical shock wave that would then travel through the crust of the earth and if you had the proper device, the proper antenna so to speak, that you could drive into the ground, uh, you could pick up this electrical pulse uh, or this reinforcing of the earth's electrical field 
and uh, tap into that uh, frequency and actually draw upon it using... So, Mark, in other words, the power was not coming out of the air. It was coming out of the ground. Well, uh, actually, as it turns out, uh, the reason that you have electricity in the form of lightning bolts is because there is a, a difference yep. in, in voltage between it, the Earth itself and the atmosphere. Actually, I understand that lightning bolts go from the ground to the cloud rather than cloud to ground. Well, I, I have heard that, although um, the, uh, and I'm not a real expert in this area, but no, I have heard the same thing, although what I've heard is that the initial uh, pulse appears to come from the sky, but the flow of the electricity is actually going from the ground to the sky. Okay, zero point. Uh, zero point energy. Energy that is supposedly all around us all the time. Okay, what is it? Yeah. Um, well, uh, the best way to describe that would be to say that um, all around us, uh, between each and every one of the atoms uh, in, in your body and the materials and the buildings, everything around you, there is there are spaces. And it's been referred to in quantum mechanics as space-time. It's kind of like a... Uh, like a matrix, like a sponge. And even though uh, you can uh, cool things down to uh, almost absolute zero, when you do that, there is still this, this minor amount, this, this, this small amount of oscillations. All right, hold, hold that thought. We will uh, come back to zero point after the break at the bottom of the hour, which we must make right now. This is Coast to Coast AM. I'm Art Bell. My guest is Mark McCandlish. Lips sweet surprise Her hands are never cold She's got better days inside She's turning music on You won't have to think twice She's pure as New York snow She's got better days Hey, hey, hey to talk with Art Bell in the Kingdom of Nye, from east of the Rockies, dial 1. 800-825-5033. West of the Rockies, including Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, and New Mexico. 1-800-618-8255. First-time callers may reach Art at area code 702-727-1222. And you may call Art on the wildcard line at area code 702-727-1295. To reach Art from outside the U.S., first dial your access number to the USA. Then, 800 8930903 This is Coast to Coast AM from the Kingdom of Nye with Art Bell. That's me. Mark McCandlish is here so you know who you're listening to for the vast uh, 18 years. Mark has worked as a technical illustration consultant to the defense and aerospace industry. A veteran of the US Air Force, he was assigned to the 318th Fighter Interceptor Squadron and stationed at McCord Air Force Base Washington in the early 70s working as a weapons control systems mechanic on the F-106 Delta Dart and so very much more. And we are talking about things, I understand, that stretch the mind a little bit, but 
Ah, it's good for you. Let your mind stretch. You know, there are about five storms stacked out there uh, right now waiting to come in and smack the West Coast. A lot of people out of power. A lot of people... Oh, as a matter of fact, we had a power failure here over the weekend of about one and one-half hour, uh, hours duration. And what did we do? <laughs> Went in the other room and got the Beijing radio and the light and turned it on. Now, the Beijing radio is an AM-FM shortwave radio, a full seven-pound radio. It has a crank on the side, and you turn it for 30 seconds, and the radio runs for 30 minutes at full room volume. So it does not take a rocket scientist to understand that if the power goes out, this is the first thing you're going to want, you're going to run to, and if you don't have one, you're going to be sorry. And it looks like El Nino is going to keep pounding us right on through spring and summer until the fall. Who knows? We're in, actually, we're in rather unknown territory at the moment. Now, listen to me very closely. Bob Crane has a special one-night-only sale on Beijing radios. He calls them orphans. They went out to somebody and came back for one reason or another. These have full warranties, and they are as new. And ladies and gentlemen, they are $94.95. I repeat, $94.95. It's the full Beijing radio. It's a one-day sale only. Limited to stock on hand. When they run out during the day, too bad, that's it. So, listen to me closely. A one-day sale, the full Beijing as new, or we call them an orphan, but they're as new with a regular guarantee, $94.95. Call Bob Crane in the morning at 7.30 a.m. And if I were you, I wouldn't wait. That's 7.30 in the morning, Pacific time, at one 800 522 
And if you've ever seen a gyroscope, you know that once you spin that thing up to speed, it'll sit there right on the edge of the table and basically won't move. That's because, right. of the, because it's like the wheels on a bicycle. It, it keeps turning, and it wants to stay in that position, and it resists being pushed away. All right. Now, what, I, what I've been told about Zero Point with regard to a propulsion system was that um, a spacecraft um, approaching the speed of light mm -hmm. could use uh, zero-point energy, in effect, taking it in in the front of the craft mm -hmm. and expelling it out the back of the craft, uh, virtually eventually reaching um, a light speed or beyond. Well, actually, uh, you're almost right, uh, okay. very close. What, what Basically, what happens is your system... Is, is like I was saying before, expands space-time behind the vehicle and compresses space. And but, in the but process... The, but the faster you're going, in other words, the more uh, zero point you would encounter. Well, that's true. And one of the things that Einstein said was that it was impossible for a material object to exceed the speed of light because its mass, its weight... That's right. ...is uh, as as sort of a, a layman's generalization. Its, its, its mass would increase to the point where it was so infinitely massive you wouldn't have enough energy to propel it forward. Well, the mass itself comes from this spinning of the electrons. And if your power system, in effect, absorbs that zero-point energy out of the vacuum before it has the opportunity to keep those electrons in the structure of your vehicle from continuing to spin at the normal speed, right. what happens is those electrons that are in all the atoms of your spacecraft and inside of yourself, they begin to slow down. They begin to drop down to lower energy levels. And as that happens, the mass of the vehicle begins to drop off. Mm -hmm. And so the faster you go and the more interaction that you have with the zero-point energy field that's around the vehicle, the more of it that is available to be absorbed and exploited as an energy source to drive the vehicle forward. And at the same time, the mass of the vehicle is getting closer and closer to almost nothing, even though the structure, the, the atomic structure, remains and is still there. So the faster you go, the faster you go. You're and, able and to the, go. And, and the, 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 the less mass you have. Yeah, so it's basically just taking the whole idea that Einstein had and turning it on its head. All right, uh, very quickly, Art, I'm a double E. I've got some comments about what has been mentioned about the Tesla coil. I built a Tesla coil when I was in the ninth grade. I took first place in our state science fair. My dad was a Ph.D. in double E and helped me. The actual transformer was easy to wind, but the important part was the oscillator. A Tesla coil is not just a transformer. It must be a virtually broadcast at close to radio frequency. When I fired up this coil, the output was over 2 million volts. I could hold a light in my hand, and it would glow. During judging, people from as far away as 5 miles complained of TV and radio interference. <laughs> from past shows, get the frequency in the bismuth metal layers. Mark's Van de Graaff generator will produce high voltage, but static charge is frequency independent. In other words, all over the place. And I doubt it would create the lift that he needs. He should drop the Van de Graaff idea and stick with a Tesla coil. Well, the, I suppose the one point that he's missed here is that the, the electrical power that's going into the Tesla coil is first coming from the Van de Graaff generator.
ah. is going through the Tesla coil, which then steps up the voltage, and the voltage then goes from there to the capacitor section. Okay, I, I've got you. In other words, you've got an additional stage of mm -hmm. amplification, actually. Now, because you have a rotating spark gap at the bottom of this, and because you're able to basically almost create a like a distributor in a car, right. you can time the pulse, the amount of electricity that goes to each one of the individual capacitors, which, if you look at the circuit diagrammatically, the Tesla coil circuit um, has each and every one of those capacitor sections sitting in parallel. But the point is that the rotating spark gap takes that electrical energy and drops it off at each one of those locations independently of the next. And, and that is, in, in fact, what you almost have to do is you have to have three equally spaced points of distribution so that you don't have more energy accumulating as the, the spark gap spins around the perimeter of its, of its uh, uh, you know, spark gap. See what I'm saying? Because as your energy level begins to rise, if you only have one point where the energy goes out to those individual capacitors, basically this thing will begin wobbling like an off-balance top. No, I've got you. Okay? I've got you. East of the Rockies, you're on the air with Mark McCandlish. Hello. Hey, it's Josh Price from West Virginia. Uh, you are at the moment. Yeah, um, I'd like to make a comment and question. Basically, um, it's very horrifying, like, the powers that Iraq have with, like, these... um. What was that one bomb, the scalar bomb? Scalar weapons. Imagine what they could do. And I was thinking, do you guys think um, this will lead to more like World War Three or something? Because I was reading in the paper, Russia was saying, like, they they ain't, they aren't, they ain't supporting us because, like... Actually, Russia, sir, has said that um, uh, an attack on Iraq could well spark World War Three. is specifically uh, what they have said. Um and so, yeah, if those kind of weapons were used, you can only imagine that it would uh, it would cause a response, if not of a similar sort, then of a nuclear sort. I, I have no idea, but sure, we could be staring down the barrel of World War Three. Sure. Uh, west of the Rockies, you're on the air with Mark McCandlish. Hello. Good morning, Art. This is uh, Ed at KBA, KBC Land in Los Angeles. Yes, sir. Anyway, uh... I find your uh, guest very interesting, very informative. I, I like his technical descriptions. They're very good. Uh, I grew up here in Pasadena. My dad ran the, uh, uh, basically the, oh, how would I say it? Oh. He, he controlled the press, the media, for for a certain county organization out here. And in the 60s, uh, I was one of the first people at the age of about six years old to see the SR-71, and the press was handled to keep it away from the public and, and to not talk about the sonic booms and stuff like that. And, you know, that kind of verifies it. But at the same time, you know, his father worked in the aircraft industry and stuff. And there were a lot of German people, and there's this lot of baloney going around by, about uh, UFOs coming out of Roswell. Well, in 47, you had all these uh, German scientists like Bernard von Braun, the man who started Star Wars, came to JPL, NASA, things of this nature. And I think that's just kind of being glazed over for this this UFO stuff. All right. Well, actually, it's a worthy question. The German connection, sure. uh, German, uh, Mark, to um, what we're doing now. Well, there have been an awful lot of allegations that were made that uh, the the right, or excuse me, the Germans, right towards the end of the Second World War, had actually stumbled upon the same technology, and it's it's perfectly plausible if you consider that they probably had it's just like we have spot 
they may have had people who were even spying on uh, Thomas Townsend Brown and uh, Professor Beefield uh, regarding their experiments with uh, capacitors in the 1930s, which, of course, predates the Second World War. So it's entirely possible that they may have stumbled upon this same effect, that they may have tried to exploit it uh, in the form of uh, saucer-shaped craft, and there's uh, certainly a... So it's entirely possible that they may have stumbled upon uh, in the form of uh, saucer-shaped craft, and there's uh, certainly a, a lot of uh, stories that have come uh, come up in the last five or six years that uh, allege that they did, in fact, have vehicles of this kind, although there have been allegations that a lot of the photographs that was associated uh, with this story were uh, hoaxed photographs. Now, um, there was a young fellow who was a friend of Sean David Morton's, uh, and I forget his name. He built that fusion rocket that flew to Area 51, and he knew... David, uh, David Adair. David Adair. There we go. Um, he has uh, said, and so has Sean Morton, that... Uh, you know, there were, in fact, a lot of uh, scientists that had been uh, part of uh, Nazi Germany that were brought over to America and employed uh, for their expertise in, in rocket propulsion. Um, but there is also a possibility, particularly when you consider that, uh, you know, 1967, the, the date that I kind of earmark as uh, the first um, uh, date that I can find evidence for uh, a military-based anti-gravity propulsion system is only 20 years after 1947 and the end of the Second World War. Um, there are some people who allege that uh, we even had systems functioning at uh, a very basic level as, as early as 1963, but I haven't seen any of the evidence that would substantiate that. So I'm just going based on... Um, uh, composite drawings that I've done and sketches that I've made based on accounts that go back as far as 1973 and match those with military photographs taken in uh, in uh, central Utah, near Provo, Utah, in 1967, which exactly match every one of the features of these same uh, vehicles that were described as so-called alien reproduction vehicles that uh, first serviced in 1967, which, by the way, happens to be the same year that... Uh, one of the people who worked with Thomas Townsend Brown patented a system for a flying saucer that looks exactly like. <laughs> patented a system for a flying saucer that looks exactly like <laughs> the so-called alien reproduction vehicle. What a coincidence. Uh, Mark, you've been so good. I want to, before the hour, this hour ends, uh, I want to give you an opportunity. I know that you have some materials that you can send out to people, but I don't know what. Well, in the past I've done that, and you know what? I found it to be rather labor-intensive and... Uh, it uh, didn't provide me as much of a, uh, a return as uh, uh, I, I really felt that it should have in terms of the amount of time involved. Okay. Uh, I do have, however, uh, I am willing to put together a reading list of, of the, the many technical papers that are available because, believe me, the people who have received uh, the information that I've sent them in the past have indicated that it is extremely advanced, highly technical, and it's over the head of most of the people who've asked for it. So. Uh, what I can do is, uh, you know, if they want to send me an envelope, uh, a self-addressed envelope and a dollar for my time, I'll Xerox a reading list off for them, send it back to them. Uh, the address would be uh, Mark McCandlish, M-A-R-K-M-C, capital C, A-N-D-L-I-S-H, and the address is 2205 Hilltop Drive, number 158, and that's in Redding, California. And the uh, zip code here is 96002. Uh, I can repeat that if you like. Please. Okay. Uh -huh. It's uh, Mark McCandlish, 
2205 Hilltop Drive, number 158 in Redding, California, 96002. Now, there are a number of people who I've lost track of that I've corresponded with in the past that I'd like to reestablish contact with, and uh, if they're listening, I'd like to talk to them again. Um, and uh, Art, uh, once again, I'd like to say it's been a real honor and a pleasure to be on your program. I, I only wish we'd had more time. Well, we do have more time. We have an hour. I just I wanted to get that information. Oh, oh. <laughs> I wanted to get that information out before we I finished we up this hour. <laughs> no, 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 no. We've, we've got to. Well, if we have a couple of minutes, I'd like to just mention briefly the reason I brought up fiber optics involved in the uh, in the Roswell thing. The reason for that is that what happens when you create a system like this anti-gravity propulsion system that cancels the mass of the vehicle. The first thing that happens is that it cancels the mass of the electrons that are flowing through the electrical system in the vehicle, and all your control parameters go right off the scale because everything has suddenly become the most perfect high-temperature superconducting circuit you could hope for. You don't have to use liquid nitrogen. You don't have to do anything special because you've basically canceled the mass of the electrons so they flow through the wires with no resistance whatsoever. The, you know, it's, it's like uh, uh, multiplying the efficiency of the electrical systems in the vehicle maybe a 100 times. Who knows? Um, but... Uh, one of the things that happens is, uh, as a result of that, is that when you put in a, a control input in an electrical circuit that has suddenly gone superconducting, uh, it's going to change your ability to be able to control the vehicle. In fact, this, this may be the reason why some of the first prototypes that the military tried to engineer actually crashed because they weren't prepared for this, this eventuality. Mark, when you build this prototype and get ready to test it, I sure would like to be there. Well, you're invited. In fact, I'll take you for a ride if it works. Uh, but let me, let me just tell you this. The most recent issue of NASA Technical Briefs that has been published describes a system that was developed for uh, the uh, um, uh, Pasadena Jet Propulsion Laboratory by some scientists working out of Caltech or the California Institute of Technology. And it describes exactly this kind of a system, a system that allows you to use fiber optics and lasers to control other systems to 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 have sensors that send you data back to your to your computer or whatever it is you have within the system. And the reason you want to do that is because photons, the very the very substance of laser light, have no mass. And so when you kill the mass of the vehicle, it's affected in the control information that you send out when you move your control stick, well, the information that comes back from the various subsystems in the vehicle, none of that is affected as long as you use laser light or photons as your medium of transferring information from one part of the vehicle to the other. There is an absolute relationship between the kind of propulsion system that you're talking about, anti-gravity propulsion, and um, uh, time travel. They're, they're, That's right. They are virtually the same thing, aren't they? Well, in a sense, they are. Um, and for anybody who's technically oriented and wanna, wants to take this down, um, uh, um, a document that was prepared by a, a gentleman by the name of Miguel Alcubierre in 1994 it was published in Classical Quantum Gravitation, Volume 11. And it uh, basically describes the concept of a warp drive. Uh, and doing that within the confines of general relativity without violating it, and it talks about creating a space-time bubble around your vehicle 
uh, where space-time is extended behind you and compressed ahead of you. All right. And Listen, we're going to have to hold okay. it on that note. <laughs> the hour is over. I've got to pay attention to the clock. Mark McCandlish is my guest, has been my guest, and will be for one more hour in some markets. I'm Art Bell from the high desert. This is Coast to Coast AM. If you... In the Kingdom of Nye, from outside the U.S., first, dial your access number to the USA. Then, 800-893-0903. If you're a first-time caller, call Art at 702-727-1222. From east of the Rockies, 1-800-825-53. Rockies, including Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, and New Mexico. Call Art at 1-800-618-8255. Or call Art on the wildcard line at area code 702-727-1295. This is Coast to Coast AM from the Kingdom of Nye. By the way, the Kingdom of Nye is Nye County, Nevada. I get a lot of email about that. And speaking of email, if you want to send me some, you can. It's artbell at aol.com. That's A-R-T-B-E-L-L, lowercase, at aol.com. I get a lot of email. For example, Art... Every night, I check your live studio camp. And you always have a different T-shirt on. How many do you have, anyway? Have you ever considered wearing a suit or maybe even a tuxedo? <laughs> You've really lost your mind out there. If you worked at home and had a studio at home, would you, to do a five-hour talk show, wear a tuxedo? Really lost your mind out there. Staying up too late, not enough sleep. Seven two. This Axe, hello, Art. Great program. Congratulations. Do us a big favor. A couple of times, a number of the cassette tapes for this program. All right. Yes, you can order cassette tapes of this program or any program you hear us do with a guest, generally. And the number is 1-800-917-4278. I repeat, one 800 9174278. That's a couple of mentions. All right, Mark, welcome back. Hey, Art. Let us go to the phones and okay. concentrate as best we can on them. Uh, west of the Rockies, you're on the air with Mark McCandlish. Uh, hi, Art. Hello. Where, uh, where are you? Uh, believe it or not, just a few miles from Mark. <laughs> okay, that's fine. Um, I thought Mark would, would uh, enjoy this. Uh, a friend of mine is a, a pilot. Uh, he flies the uh, Aurora, and I thought I'd tell you a few things about it that are fascinating. Mm -hmm. uh, number one, uh, it goes about twenty-six thousand miles an hour. Mm -hmm. About Mach seventeen, right? He can, yeah, he can be anywhere on the planet in less than thirty minutes. Wow! Mm -hmm. It takes off in less than one hundred and fifty feet, goes straight up. You count to fifteen, and it's over a hundred thousand feet. 
They, he also asked me, I, I gave him some information. They've already had over 20 ground crew killed uh, from touching the airplane uh, when it came back uh, before it was apparently grounded out. It's, it runs on extremely high electrical energy. Mm -hmm. And when it takes off, um, it, uh, it's practically silent. I've, I, I haven't seen it, but a lot of my friends uh, have told me about it. Mm -hmm. And um, Actually, this doesn't sound like the Aurora. This actually sounds like uh, some sort of an anti-gravity or electrostatic uh, propulsion system. Well, it, it looks like an Indian arrowhead, they tell mm -hmm. me, is what it looks like. Okay. And you're convinced, Mark, we have that technology? Oh, yes, I'm sure of it. Um, in fact, uh, I think one of the stories I told you in an earlier program was... Uh, Meeting a, a fellow who actually worked at area, or excuse me, uh, plant 42 in Lancaster and Palmdale, who uh, uh, during a smoke break one evening, middle of the week in 1992, uh, saw a, uh, a large black uh, disc-shaped vehicle land uh, just outside the uh, Lockheed Skunk Works at the southwest corner of plant 42. Uh, that it was covered by a series of um, some, uh, similar to these cherry picker vehicles that uh, the electrical servicemen work on power lines with, each of which had a kind of tarp uh, from the cherry picker basket, and they covered the whole thing up, rolled it into the hangar, and uh, he indicated that uh, a week later he saw this uh, same vehicle emerge, uh, that it was uncovered by uh, the tarps, that after a period of time it uh, rose silently to about five to 600 feet off the ground and after hovering there silently for about 10 minutes, uh, rocketed, well, that's not right, the right term, it shot away as though it had been fired out of a cannon with absolutely no noise whatsoever, passed him, he said he was about a quarter of a mile away, and it passed him and disappeared out of sight uh, in under two seconds. <laughs> yeah, so... Yeah. All right. Um, first time caller line, you're on the air with Mark McCandless. Hello. Hello, Mark. How are you doing? I'm fine. Um, I had a question for you. Um, my name's Kurt. I'm calling you from uh, Grass Valley, California. Yes, sir. I listen to you on KNCO Radio. Right. That's um, not too I far from Beale Air Force Base, is it? I, I was just going to comment on that. Um, I overlook um, Beale Air Force Base. I'm approximately 10 miles from it, probably about five air miles, and noticed all kinds of um, weird crafts throughout the years. I've lived here for almost 25 years. Mm -hmm. uh, I followed the SR-71, the, uh, the stealth bomber, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And last night, I happened to see this uh, craft last night that that shot across the sky, stopped somewhat in the vicinity of Beale Air Force Base, and then took off like a bat out of hell again. What and direction was it traveling in when it um, came in, and what here, direction was it traveling in when it left? Um, I would say it was coming from the east, and... Let's see. From the yeah, be from the east and then shot off towards the west. Mm -hmm. And it's, it, it's, it's just uh, coincidental, by the way, that uh, there have been a lot of UFO sightings in the vicinity of uh, Clear Lake, which is due west of Beale Air Force Base, right, out near the right. coast. Hmm. Um, in fact, uh, you're, you sound like somebody I would like to correspond with. If you got that address, uh, drop me a line. Okay, I, I do have an email, email address if you want that. Uh, just include it in a letter. Okay, I will do that. All right, Mark, do you have an email address? Uh, at the present time, no, but I can tell you that uh, because of the complexity of the Tesla coil that uh, I'm going to need to use on this, I'm definitely going to have to get a computer, and there are already a number of uh, pieces of software available from the International Tesla Society that will allow me to develop the, I guess, 48 different 
parameters that you need to know about when you're building a large Tesla coil so it doesn't fry you. Yeah. All right, well, I, listen, I'm, I'd like to apologize. Apparently, we broke your server. Um, people are getting a 503 area error too many users. Oh, really? So your server must have a limit, and apparently we reached it for you. Our wildcard line, you're on the air with Mark McCandless. Hello. Hi, this is Tom in Reno Art. Hi, Tom. Um, Mr. McCandless, I have Hi. a couple of questions. Go ahead, Tom. Um, if a scalar-type weapon were to be used against us, could you use a source like the harp to generate a cancellation wave effectively neutralizing the intersecting point of the interference patterns in the pulse? Well, you know, I've, I've actually uh, speculated about that. And, uh, in fact, I, I talked to one of the uh, leading experts on scalar weapons, a gentleman by the name of Thomas Bearden, who uh, lives near Huntsville, Alabama. And he told me, and this is probably about a year ago, that he did not feel that the HARP system had any hope of interfering with scalar system. Um, in fact, he felt that it was really operating on a completely different principle. So uh, in answer to your question, um, no, I don't think that it would help us. Too bad. Yeah, really. All right. Thank, okay. you. Thank you very much, caller. Take care. Uh, East of the Rockies, you're on the air with Mark McCandlish. Hello. Hi. Uh, my name is Mike. I'm calling from Morgan Park, Minnesota. Hi, Mike. Which is pretty close to Lake County, actually. Yep. Yes, oh, the uh, famous Lake County abduction. McPherson's, yep. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd just like to make a correction about um, the J.P. Morgan uh, dying on the Titanic. Oh, okay. Um, actually, there, was some, there was some benefactor of Tesla's that did die on the Titanic, I know that, but it may not have been J.P. Morgan. Yeah, he, he asked, J.P. Morgan actually had plans to go on the Titanic in 1912, mm -hmm. but um, he was too ill to do it. So he actually died in Rome in 1913, uh -huh. the next year. So. Okay. So that's what happened to All right. Uh, well, we appreciate Morgan. the uh, correction. Thanks. Thanks. Right. Thank you. Uh, but there was a benefactor on the uh, Titanic. Yeah, that's right. All right. West of the Rockies, you're on the air with Mark McCandlish. Good morning. Hi. My name is uh, Jeff, and I'm in San I can just barely hear you. I can you. barely hear you, too, Jeff. You're going to have to yell at us. Is that better? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Where yeah. are you? I'm in San Bernardino, California. All right. Uh, about five miles from Norton Air Force Base. Oh, my old stomping grounds. Yeah. I used to live in Rialto. Well, cool. Then you know where I'm talking about. Yes. I work out at the uh, concrete plant that's out at the... Uh, oh, you see right off the end of the runway. Yeah. And uh, I guess it was probably about 1989 oh, or so. Had a real early start time. Mm -hmm. And uh, me and about three of the other drivers saw this aircraft take off. And it was going so fast. Well, actually, the only thing I really noticed about it was the wheels, mm -hmm. the landing gear. Right. They looked like they had, like, steel braid on. That's right. You're and exactly that, right. That am I, am that, I close? The aircraft you're talking about is the Aurora. That was That it. was the one. Well, what do you know? That show. And okay. it was uh, November, November 12th, 1988. Well, there you go. <laughs> You're welcome. Does anybody have a? Uh, I, I I keep getting sent photographs um, of, of supposed auroras, mm -hmm. and I don't know what an aurora should 
exactly look like, so I don't know when I'm getting a real photograph. Well, the vehicle that he was uh, describing there just a minute ago was the one that had the kind of flattened out football shape, and, and the reason for the braided uh, stainless steel mesh that uh, basically made up or, or simulated uh, the tires was because of the extreme heat that the airframe is subjected to traveling at 26,000 miles per hour or, you know, seven, Mach 17 or somewhere above that speed. The entire vehicle is covered with uh, the same kind of heat ablating uh, tiles like you would find on the space shuttle. Uh-huh. And the fuel system it consists of what they call slush hydrogen, or it's it's almost like hydrogen that's been compressed so much that it's not even a liquid. It's more like a milkshake. <laughs> and this uh, this material is pumped through the skin of the vehicle to try and keep it from burning up, in spite of the fact that it has space shuttle tiles all over it. Uh, that same heat is used to liquefy the fuel and then eventually atomize it before it's injected out through those little fuel ejectors that are on the outer surface. But um, the individual that I uh, spoke to who was at this uh, presentation that involved uh, Senator Cranston and uh, Congressman Georgie Brown, Jr., uh, actually had an opportunity to walk under this vehicle, and he said that it had 121 vertical launch tubes for nuclear reentry vehicles on the underside of this craft. And the system for launching these nuclear reentry vehicles was so elegantly simple, it just defies description. But I'll, I'll give it to you in the basic. There is a circular tile on the outside of the vehicle with explosive bolts around its perimeter. Mm-hmm. Up underneath that is a three-piece fiberglass bow or uh, spacer that holds a triangular-shaped reentry vehicle that is pointing down. Up inside the tube and directly above the reentry vehicle is another circular tile, just like the one on the outside. And behind that is a big coiled spring, just like you'd find in the suspension of a car. When you fire off and release this nuclear reentry vehicle or even a conventional munition that's in this kind of a, a terminally guided munition, the external tile blows away, is carried away by the supersonic airstream. The uh, reentry vehicle emerges from the tube, the three-piece sabot or spacer blows away, the cone stabilizes in the airflow just like tossing an ice cream cone out the window of a car, and immediately the second tile that's behind it slams down into place and immediately uh, reinstates the perfect aerodynamic surface that was there before with no turbulence. Wow. And it does that in like a tenth of a second. <laughs> and it's got 121 of those babies inside. Mark, don't you worry that uh, describing in detail the way you are a lot of these things is going to cause somebody to come knocking on your door? Well, you know, the problem is that, um, uh, you know, I I think the first time I talked about this kind of stuff uh, with you was in 1994. Right. And although there were some pretty strange things that have happened to me in the meantime, um, you know, uh, strange power failures, uh, uh, alternators in my car blowing out, somebody running me off the road. Uh, you know, nobody's ever taken a shot at me. Um, I haven't had any threatening phone calls since that time. Um, and uh, quite frankly, if uh, if somebody was interested in um, finding out how I know what I know, I'd be happy to tell them. Uh, it's just that I don't feel comfortable disclosing actual names of sources over the air. I understand. For obvious reasons. Sure. But, you know, I, I would just soon be recruited into a program and get to play with this stuff rather than sit around speculating. 
Uh-huh. You know what I mean? I do. East of the Rockies, you're on the air with Mark McCandlish. Good morning. Art? Yes. I'm glad to hear you're back hailing hearty, boy. Ah, uh, good. Uh, where are this you? This is Dave, and I'm in the boondocks just south of Columbus, Ohio. Okay. Uh, I have a question for you and one for Mark. Mark, do you know John Hutchison? No, I don't. He is a scientist in Canada who has already developed anti-gravity. I saw it demonstrated. How long ago? Uh, well, it's probably 88, maybe 87. Mm-hmm. Uh, last year, I got a little communique that said the Canadian government went in and stripped his laboratory dry. Took everything. Mm-hmm. Actually, that was also uh, done to Tesla. When Tesla passed away... Right. I believe the FBI was it the FBI? That's right. Uh, went in and virtually took every everything. His notes, everything. Uh-huh. Well, I've heard this story before. Um, you know, uh, there's uh, also a gentleman in Canada, and I Frank, uh, don't recall his name offhand. I think the uh, uh, the title of the book that was written about him was something like the uh, the butterfly and the concrete man or something like that uh, i don't recall the exact name of it but it it described a similar event or series of events where a, a gentleman uh, seemed to come into some information and in this case he claimed it was from direct contact with some extraterrestrials or pleiadians or something uh and gave him a very simple system for creating a, a vehicle using uh, an anti-gravity propulsion system and and uh, that he actually built something that worked, and it flew away, and nobody ever saw it again. And um, all the efforts to try and reproduce that initial experiment have failed since then, from what I understand. But but uh, he had some people show up in dark suits and basically walk right in. Mm-hmm. Uh, they appeared to be civilian, did not present any kind of uh, identification. Uh, they actually appeared to be uh, some kind of... Uh, Upper echelon uh, corporate uh, officials of some kind. But well, you know, uh, anybody who doesn't believe that we have the equivalent of the now infamous men in black are out of their minds. Uh, they're out of their minds. Obviously, a government would have to have some sort of organization that would control uh, technology that was being developed in the sure. private sector that might be uh, competing with what we have done. Sure. Well, you know, I look at David Adair's story where they basically... Uh, footed the bill for all the experiments that this brilliant young man was attempting to do, uh, and uh, save for the fact that he objected to uh, their uh, desire to turn his system into a first strike capability, uh, he might have been recruited right at that moment once he proved the success of his beliefs and his, his uh, system as he had theorized it. Uh, he probably could have had carte blanche as far as where he wanted to work and what he wanted to do. Um, well, you can generally believe that once the U.S. military gets involved, uh, their motivations are not going to be to end the use of fossil fuels or something like that. They're going to be looking for military application. And uh, if, they, it, if, if they find it... Yeah. Well, I, you know, it's completely understandable. I, I have an associate who's told me point blank that the, the people that he has uh, discussed this topic with have, have told him in no uncertain terms that... Unleashing this kind of technology on the economy of the world would uh, lead to a, a worldwide collapse within six months and a nuclear war within uh, within a year. Okay, then I guess we'll just have to hold it uh, secret, and we'll also have to break. It's the bottom of...
To talk with Art Bell in the Kingdom of Nye, from east of the Rockies, dial 1-800-825-5033. 1-800-825-5033. West of the Rockies, including Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, and New Mexico. 1-800-618-8255. 1-800-618-8255. Now again, here's Art Bell. Good morning, Mark McCandless is here, everybody. No time to be young, isn't that the truth? Uh, no time to stay up late and listen to talk shows night after night, right? <laughs> How about Real Talk? That'll take care of your problems. Real Talk is an AM-FM radio. It is digital. It's black. The readout is white. It has uh, an AC power cord, so you can plug it in, or it runs on batteries as well. It's got a built-in clock, digital tuning, microphone and headphone jack, sleep timer, one-touch recording, and best of all, built into this incredible machine is a one-quarter speed tape deck. <laughs> now, that means that, um, oh, say, take a 110-minute tape. Normally, it would yield 55 minutes of record time on one side. But, because it's real talk, you get nearly four hours on one side instead of just 55 minutes. Or nearly eight hours on both sides. That's real talk. So, if you're sick of missing talk shows, this is the only way to go. Now, uh, we sell it at the same price that everybody else does, $149.95, but we have a better deal. We include shipping and handling free of charge, very non-trivial amount of money. We also include a high-quality 110-minute tape that you can use again and again. So if you want to buy it somewhere else, fine, go ahead. If you want the best deal, it's right here, $149. 95. Also, they've got the pocket size personal quarter speed player for Real Talk at $64.95. This little guy runs on a couple of AA batteries. So, that means you can take the tape from the Real Talk and put it into this small hand size player if you want to. The number to call for either one or both of these items in the morning at 7.30 a.m. is 1-800- 522-8863. That's 1-800-522-8863. Are you having arthritis pain? Would you like to stop that pain in your joints now? Glucosamine and chondroitin sulfate can help. With the arthritis assist formula, you can get them at a fraction of what you pay in stores. Plus, the arthritis assist formula contains another revolutionary nutrient that's helped many people in Europe. Gelatin. Gelatin's full of the same kind of protein found in cartilage, the stuff that cushions your joints so they don't hurt. As we age, most of us get arthritis and our cartilage begins getting brittle. Studies show that gelatin nutritionally supports cartilage regeneration. Gelatin along with glucosamine and chondroitin sulfate, are found in the arthritis assist formula. Stop those aches and pains without drugs by using all-natural arthritis assist. Here's the offer. Order a 90-day supply of arthritis assist, and you'll get a pain relief cream that provides immediate relief to your joints absolutely free. Call 1-800-232-5665. It's guaranteed to work or your money back, and you can't get it in stores. Call now. 
1-800-232-5665. You've got nothing to lose but the pain. Oh, this is really, really interesting. Uh, Mark from the New York Times, December 14, 1944. The headline was, Floating Mystery Ball is New German Weapon. Supreme Headquarters, Allied Expeditionary Force, December 13th. A new German weapon has made its appearance on the Western Air Front. It was disclosed today. Quote, Airmen of the American Air Force report, they are encountering silver-colored spheres in the air over German territory. The spheres are encountered either singly or in clusters. Sometimes they are semi-translucent. End quote. New York Times. Well, it sounds like uh, one of the first accounts of the so-called Foo Fighters that were seen throughout the Second World War. And uh, um, although the uh, stories um, of Nazi-built uh, or German-built UFOs have persisted over the years, uh, there have been a number of people who said that uh, they never could account for those silver spheres that uh, seemed to zip in and out of aircraft formations throughout the war. Exactly. So, all right, here's one more little item for you. All right, the man who died on the Titanic, the uh, man who funded Tesla, was Van Buren. According to Titanic, Titanic myth, he asked for a brandy and sat in the ballroom while the ship sank. Hmm, I think they've incorporated that into the movie, too. Yeah, it may be. Uh, God, something about a, dying what, with dignity, I think. Uh-huh, what a movie that was. Mm -hmm. First time caller line, you're on the air um, with Mark McCandlish. Hello? What? Hello? Yes, I can barely hear you, dear. You're going to have to yell at us. I'm sorry. This is Katie. Where are Katie. you? In Arkansas. Arkansas, okay. Well, I just wanted to say that my, my mother and I, I'm kind of nervous because it's kind of hard to talk about. Um, we're in kind of the rural part of Arkansas. Right. And we were up here and... Looking at the stars and everything, because there's supposed to be a mirror at and everything, we're watching it. Last time we saw this cluster of stars, and it was like, I don't know, a triangular shape, but it was, I mean, it was just like stars. Mm -hmm. But they blinked at the same time. Sure. And they were going away from us, and, you know, I was just getting around, and my mom and I were watching, and I said, hey, we're over here, you know. Mm -hmm. Last time it came towards us. I mean, got right up to us, and now I was, like, getting scared. How big do you think this thing was? I don't know. I mean, honestly, I mean, it had to be huge because, mm -hmm. I mean, it looked about, probably about, let's see, two, probably about ten stars together. And you know how stars are away from you. I mean, sure. they're big mm -hmm. looking. And, I mean, and then I was like, no, I'm just kidding. Go away. Go away. You know, I mean, I got petrified. My mom was like, just calm down, it's okay. Mm -hmm. And I said, did you see that? And she goes, yes, I did. And I said, I don't want that. You know, and it went away. Mm. I mean, it... Right, there are, there are, did you ever, were you ever able to pick out a silhouette of what the actual shape of the vehicle looked like? It looked triangular. Mm -hmm. was, it in, was it an elongated triangle or was it like an equilateral, well, three equal sides? Well, probably equal. Okay. All right, well, there you go from rural Arkansas. I mean, that, you, you, I could sit here and take report after report like that. That's true. Just, just, for, just for her uh, edification, uh, one of the eyewitnesses that I've spoken to who saw a similar vehicle near Plant 42 in Lancaster in 1987 indicated that she had seen uh, multitudes of little lights on the belly of the vehicle as it passed overhead. 
that seemed to be passing across its underside at about the same pace as the star background was moving behind it so that it gave the illusion of, uh, well, sort of a starfield camouflage, if you will. You really couldn't see it unless you could pick out the silhouette of the craft itself. All right. Uh, here's somebody who writes uh, and wrote earlier. Art, I'm still having a problem with the Van de Graaff generator. There's no way you could use it as an input to a Tesla coil. Please ask Mark what kind of component can take close to a million volts and static at that as an input, no transistor or tube I'm aware of. In the Tesla coil I built, we had to search all over to find an old military tube that could oscillate several hundred volts, which was applied to the primary windings, the secondary winding became an antenna. Unless alien technology can provide such a component, you'll have to bring it up to frequency before the voltage is stepped up. See what he says. <laughs> well, it's all pretty technical, but the coils that were described on the vehicle that uh, my friend saw were uh, copper windings that were a quarter of an inch in diameter. They were separated and cast within a... Um, uh, a circular ring made of a, 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 a light green translucent plastic with almost a three-quarter, three-quarters of an inch spacing in between each one of the individual coils. Now that's in just the primary windings. The, uh, the windings, uh, in that part of the Tesla coil are actually fewer than in the secondary windings, which are usually of a smaller gauge wire, uh, usually placed much closer together. And, uh, you know, two, three, four many, uh, four times more windings than you would find in the primary section of the Tesla coil. Now, it's my understanding that, uh, one of the things that's incorporated into that central column is, uh, something very similar to a, uh, a vacuum triode, uh, which is a form of uh -huh. amplifier and oscillator. Uh, -huh. uh, and it uses a uh, mercury vapor under an extreme vacuum. Um, and the tube that it is housed in is a type of fused quartz. Okay, that now, makes sense. Now, uh, you know, this may in fact be the component that he is uh, trying to uh, suggest would have suggest to be there. Suggest would have to be there, yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay, I've got you. Wildcard Line, you're on the air with Mark McCandlish. Hello. Uh, hello, Colin from Spokane. Yes, KGA. sir. KGA. In 1908, in Tunguska, there was a... a explosion that destroyed a thousand square miles. Mm -hmm. I wanted to know if you thought possibly that could have been Tesla experimenting with with his version of this EMP thing. Well, as it turns out, there there is actually a, uh, there was a, um, an episode of the program called Sightings, uh, which uh, dealt with that particular subject, and I think they made a, a pretty good argument for the idea that uh, um, Tesla had uh, began to lose funding for this power transmission system that he was building at Wardenclyffe. Mm -hmm. And uh, although um, it didn't look as though he was going to be able to build it, he was hoping to find investors by making a demonstration of this system. And it is believed that uh, he was uh, trying to transmit a pulse of energy to, I believe it was... Uh, uh, Admiral Byrd, who was uh, journeying to uh, the North Pole at the time, hoping that this would somehow uh, be witnessed by the uh, expedition. 
but that the, the speculation in the article that I've read, uh, read concerning this and the program that was aired on television suggests that Tesla had his coordinates off and that this pulse of energy actually came out of hyperspace uh, over Tunguska uh, and basically unleashed all the electrical energy that he'd pumped into it. Now, I have no idea whether it's true or not. I'm not even sure whether it would have been possible, but... Uh, if you look at this in the same way as that earthquake machine that I described earlier where you send out a pulse, uh, in, in this case, of electricity, and you find that resonant frequency of the earth itself, and then you pick a nodal point somewhere on it, like plucking a particular part of a guitar string, uh, and you hit a particular frequency, you may, in fact, be, any, be able to get physical results at a distant location, and, and that may have been what happened, but I, I honestly couldn't tell you. I don't know. All right. Traffic has eased a little bit, folks, and if you'll go up to my website and go down to the photograph of Mark McCandlish and click on his name, it will take you to his website, and now you can make it in, uh, or at least until enough of you hear this announcement and go up there and crash it again. <laughs> <laughs> Ease to the Rockies, you're on the air with Mark McCandlish. Hello. Hello? Hello. Hello. Uh, Mr. Bell? Yes. Uh. Mr. McEnglish. Yes. Uh, I've been researching this uh, electrogravitic topic for quite some time. Uh, oh, by the way, this is Carlos in Chicago. Hi, Carlos. And uh, one thing I've found is that photons actually have mass. If, it were, if that was not the case, we would not have an electromagnetic spectrum and there wouldn't be the high interaction rate that photons have. Otherwise, if they had no mass, they would be more like neutrinos. Hmm. Another thing is, I think that... Uh, Did you discover this in a laboratory environment or mathematically? Uh, this is uh, reviewing the information, you know, mm -hmm. uh, basic physics information. Well, well it, is, it is true that if a photon strikes certain materials, that it will uh, basically decay or, or come apart, forming an electron and a positron, both of which have mass. So it, it does kind of uh, make one wonder how can a particle with no mass or a, a quantum packet with no mass uh, yield uh, two uh, smaller particles that, uh, that do have mass. It's an interesting Well, question. it's because of the inertial field, you see, that they can interact with each other. Mm -hmm. It is because of the mass that the brute force... Uh, mass particles have that the lighter particles such as photons have that, that make it possible for them to re interact with each other like two uh, particles having you know, mass and uh, their inertial field forming their gravitational field between them. Mm -hmm. Now one of the things that I noticed that uh, Tom Bearden has said in some of his papers is that uh, a uh, photon is basically just an electron that has, uh, as he calls it, ortho-rotated out of this reference frame or this dimension by 90 degrees. Hmm. Now, I'm not sure if that helps to answer part of your question, but it may suggest that a, uh, a photon is actually an electron that's sort of hovering on the fringe of uh, this dimension uh, before passing into hyperspace. All right. West of the Rockies, you're on the air with Mark McCandlish. Good morning. Yeah, hi, Art and Mark. Hi, yes. where are you, sir? I'm doing fine. No, I say, where are you? Oh, I'm in San Diego, I'm sorry. Fine in San Diego. Okay, go ahead. Uh, well, I have three uh, quick statements and questions. Uh, well, actually, maybe a little bit more. Um, one, your fellow that needs the parts of the Tesla coil, mm -hmm. uh, if you want to keep me on the line, I can help him out. Well, I can't keep you on the line, so okay. you'll have to contact him. We gave his address. We'll give it again. Okay. Second of all, um, uh, what the last fellow said, uh, I generally agree with. Uh, now, back to what I had to say is, 
you had a, a, a person on the air, what, two nights ago, about the trans capacitor? Yes, uh, um, Jack Schumann. Yeah, he is using the same technology, I believe, that uh, uh, we're talking about here for the time machine. So you should. Uh, you, you know, you may be right about that. I think I, he, I think he is right. Up. I think uh, you're the same right. Thing is, uh, okay, I built my time machine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what do you push it off from? Because uh, once you're off planet Earth, uh, it, there's a lot of empty space out there. Uh, and moreover, uh, how quickly do you accelerate? Um, uh, these are all good questions. How, how do you control the rate of acceleration? Well, I haven't got any. Uh, well, if he's speaking in terms of anti-gravity propulsion functioning uh, as a time machine uh, while considering special relativity, then I would say that basically you are where you think you are and, and based on what you can see. Uh, but you have to remember that in special relativity, uh, the flow of time uh, is also uh, determined as a factor of what uh, a person at the point of departure sees when all of this occurs. That is to say that the guy who's in the spaceship leaving supposedly at the speed of light may see one thing. The guy on the ground is going to see this uh, vehicle rocket away like it was fired out of a rifle. Okay. Um, before we run out of time, if you'll send Mark McCandless a self-addressed stamped envelope, number 10 probably, uh, and one buck, he'll send you a reading list of all the kind of stuff he's been talking about. Uh, it goes to Mark McCandlish at 2205-2205, Hilltop Drive, number 158, number 158, in Redding, California, zip code 96002. By the way, Mark, is it uh, raining there still? Oh, it has been. In fact, uh, the ground outside is like uh, oatmeal with... Uh with uh, AstroTurf on top. <laughs> yeah, we're also getting rain here in the desert and have been for hours. Well, you know, I'd like to mention that uh, anyone who's listening out there that has some technical expertise in fiber optics, lasers, uh, high-voltage uh, electrical systems and things of that nature who might be interested in corresponding with me on the development of this system, love to hear from you. Uh, particularly like to hear from that witness who is working at the cement plant uh, off the end of the runway there at Norton Air Force Base also. I'd like to correspond with him. And, of course, anybody who uh, believes that they've uh, been a participant or a victim of the abduction phenomenon who thinks they may have seen some components of a propulsion system, and I'm talking about bona fide cases here, not people who are just sure. uh, into escapism, uh, I'd like to hear from them also. All right. East of the Rockies, you're on the air with Mark McCandlish. Hello. Yes, hello. Turn your radio off, please. I just hit the button. Good for you. Where are you? Uh, Dallas, Texas. All right. And I wanted to mention, I called earlier uh, when uh, 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 David Adair was on, and I wanted to mention that to this um, uh, researcher here that um, these two articles that were in the uh, Mechanics Illustrated, um, June and July, they were in uh, two months together, 1957. And the first one was titled Anti-Gravity Power of the Future by G. Harry Stein. And it mentioned several um, uh, researchers, um, uh, Bell and Crooks, uh, William Crooks and Townsend T. Brown, mentioned several universities that were developed, that were working on it, major universities, major um, uh, um, uh, aircraft, aerospace companies. And they were talking about using a, um, a, con- a, um, a condenser in connection A condenser with is the same as a capacitor. Yeah. And um, it just seems to me like they were, this was basically, they, they had just stumbled upon it maybe at this time in 1957, and then later on they decided to cover it up. Is that 
a possibility. I think that's exactly what happened. I think they had a breakthrough. They found out how the system would work. And the, the interesting thing about the development of the system is that if you look at the way the components are oriented, the capacitors all pointing outward from the base of the Tesla coil, you find that the, the electrical field that's generated by the Tesla coil itself is also radially oriented like that. And so what happens is that in each one of the capacitors, you have the electrons that are stored as a potential there that are all lining up like, uh, like little soldiers in a line. Almost like those, uh, those ball bearings that you see in that little gift at the store where you take one out and you let it go and it hits back and forth. Um, that, uh, that is essentially the, the, the foundation of what is called a scalar wave. Um, in 1903, a gentleman by the name of Edmund Whitaker wrote a paper indicating that if you could modulate a uh, scalar wave, that it would resonate everywhere in the universe simultaneously, which right there and then the guy was basically saying superluminal or faster than light speed communication is possible. It's also one of the reasons why, and, and but it, but I think it's being incorporated into this propulsion system, and I, I also think it's one of the reasons why the SETI program, as it's currently structured, is never going to find any interplanetary communications with aliens because they're they're listening with uh, the entirely wrong type of ear, so to speak. They're uh, listening I'm, for scalar transmissions rather than radio frequency transmissions that are limited to the speed of light. Right. I just recently obtained a book that I had um, gotten on the advice of David Adair, um, uh, Paul Hill. Have you oh. heard of him before? Oh, yes. Unconventional Flying Objects. Is his, is his research, I haven't really had a chance to really go into it. Does he pretty much parallel what you're talking about with um, using the, uh, it sounds like you use three components, the Tesla coil, uh, the, the condenser, and a Van de Graaff generator you said earlier? Mm -hmm. Well, that's, that's what I'm proposing. Uh, you could also uh, try something like a Wimshurst electrostatic generator, which is the kind of thing that uh, Fred Bell had talked about in his time machine. Um, but uh, uh, Paul Hill, in his book, uh, goes through and analyzes uh, a, a multitude of UFO cases and breaks down the evidence according to uh, the kind of factors that it would answer from a technical perspective. That is to say, if you have a certain kind of radiation that's been detected in a certain uh, case where there was a sighting, uh, does that mean that this vehicle was emitting X-rays or gamma rays or, or what have you? Mark, uh, uh, we are out of time. Okay, well, anyway, show Show's over. It's a good book. Uh, it's it. been a good show. Listen, my friend, thank you so very much. It was an honor, Art. We will do it again. Uh, always too much to talk about, not enough time. Really. Thank you, my friend, and, uh, and good night. Good night. That's Mark McCandless, folks, and I hope you enjoyed it. I told you you would. I told you you would. <laughs> All right, tomorrow night we'll be talking about Devil's Hole, which can be viewed on my website. We've actually got a picture of this hole. That's tomorrow night. To get a copy of what you just heard, call 1-800-917-4278. From the high desert, good night. Everybody listen.